Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 it is two o'clock and you are listening to the dave ellswick show filling in for dave ellswick today i am your host timothy Lim, and with me is my co-host partner in crime mark pellegrini say hi to everyone mark. hey what's going on oh i can't complain so uh this is our second time filling in for dave you might have heard us on the radio before as guests um, it's a real pleasure to be in the studio with y'all once again, filling in for him. I consider it a great honor that he would trust me with his seat and not quite the golden microphone, but silver microphone in my face, which is really cool. Um, you might know us from uh, previous works that we've done. So our background is that we're creators of content. We do comics, we do books, things of that nature. Mark and I co-created Thump, The First Bundred Days, which is a book that you can buy right now on Amazon. It was published by Post Hill Press. Uh, we went on to make other books that are uh, satires and parodies involving um, the president. So Trump Space Force we worked on with Chuck Dixon. We worked on My Hero Magademia and its sequel, Walmite. And for people who don't like the politics, we worked on some other stuff too, like Black Ops, which is currently funding right now on Indiegogo. But what we're here to do for the next four hours is talk to you guys about politics, pop culture, and bring in a few interesting guests. So right at the start, let me just tell you guys that um, around 3 and 5 o'clock today, respectively, we're going to have two confirmed guests who are going to be calling in to join us. One of them is Doug Tenaple himself, creator of Earthworm Jim, worked on several properties, including Veggie Tales. And then at 5 o'clock, we are honored to have the legendary Chuck Dixon, Chuck Dixon, obviously is the creator of Bane from the Batman franchise. He is also the most prolific writer in comics history. He has written more pages of text than any other writer. He is currently working with Sylvester Stallone himself on the development of his Levon franchise. And so we're going to try and get as much information out of Chuck as possible. But first of all, in the news, I'm looking at this, this feed right now. And it says, Karen and Charlotte Pence signed with Regnery for two more Marlon Bundo books. Folks, those books are great. Um, Karen and Charlotte Pence, as you know, the vice president's wife and daughter, they have a rabbit named Marlon Bundo. And the first book was really good. I actually own a signed copy of it. The second book, uh, Marlon Bundo Visits the Capitol, I think it's on my Christmas wish list, but that is supposed to be a really good book too. So I'm really happy to hear that. Um, but again, Mark and I have a book, uh, not connected to them, but also in, involving rabbits. Thump, the first hundred days. It's a story of the 2016 election as told through animals. So we replaced the president with a cute, adorable uh, rabbit, and he has to fight the villains of the swamp and try to attain the presidency with the grassroots movement of, ador- of deplorables. Or as How we does call it them, end? Adorable book end. There was no twist ending. Did you try to spoil it? Try to spoil the, the ending live on, on the air? He wins. <laughs> and he wins big. So make sure if you haven't picked it up, we're on our ninth printing of it. We're very happy. For two guys who have never done this before, we're doing pretty well our for book. ourselves. Yeah. It was our first book. So, um, again, we're here to talk about the intersection of politics and pop culture. 
Mark, I don't know how you're feeling. You want to watch Rambo tonight? <laughs> I do, <laughs> uh, just because everyone's telling me not to watch it. And that just means, you know, I'm going to do the opposite of what uh, CNN tells me to do. They tell me not to watch uh, Dave Chappelle's comedy special or Rambo 5. Well, guess what I'm watching tonight? Exactly. So we were doing a live stream last night. We have a channel on YouTube. We just started it. So we've had it for a while, but we never did anything with it. But for the last two nights, we've been... Um, doing new material, do it. We found out how to do live streaming, so now we can basically host our own radio show. So it's called the Bunder Dome, like bun, like a rabbit, like rabbits. It's always like rabbits. rabbits, exactly. And our motto is: two shall enter, but many will leave. And there's no wrong way to interpret that. What we mean is that we're typically two hosts, and hopefully we get in some some people. So by the time the show's over, many people will leave, not just two of us. But last night we were talking about Rambo. Now, if you remember on the show last night. We were talking about how you just know what the left is going to do. You know that they're going to to excoriate this movie because I don't think it's stated, but it's it's kind of one of those um, insider secrets that Sly is like a Republican, yeah. right? He's working with Chuck Dixon. He's working with Chuck Dixon. So he's kind of a red-pilled guy. So people were like, okay, he's fighting what looks like a Mexican cartel. Uh, it's going to be you know pretty violent, kind of a throwback to how 80s movies were. Yeah. So... On the, on the stream last night, um, George Alexopoulos was like, well, you know that the, the media is going to excoriate this movie, right? Of course, yeah. And it's like, okay. So I looked on Rotten Tomatoes today. And sure enough, that's what they're doing. Oh, yeah. They're saying it's an allegory for um, basically I mean, Trump's if America. if you watch a movie and it's it's a guy killing MS-13 and, and drug cartel dudes who are just raping and pillaging and uh, invading the country, you look at that and like, I'm offended. He shouldn't be killing them. He shouldn't be fighting them. This is offensive. Like, ah, you're you're a bad person. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I think I was on Screen Rant, and um, I read an article. I guess it was a review on the uh, movie, and basically they were saying the exact same things you were talking about. It's like, really? You can you know? set your watch by them. That's the thing. Yeah. Now, Zach, are you excited to watch Rambo? Well, see, I don't know if I'll go see it this week or maybe okay. next week. I'm not because there's two movies out this weekend that are pretty good that I may want to go see. What's the other one? Ad Astra. Oh, Ad Astra. I didn't know that came out this weekend. It came out this year. Yep, came out well, last night. But um, those are the two movies. I may go see one next week and the other the week after. But I'm interested in Rambo. And um, like I say, you know, because everyone else is telling me not to watch the movie <laughs> for those various reasons. You know, they're telling you what to do again. I plan to go see it. Now, here's the question, Zach. What if they tell you to watch Ad Astra? Uh-oh. Oh, caught him in a tough spot. <laughs> well, see, the thing is, I was already interested in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Zach, between the three of us, Zach's a cerebral one. We were talking about books we were reading, and uh, we were like, oh, yeah, comics. And he's like, I just read 1984. I was like, oh, Zach. <laughs> oh, you read a book without pictures? <laughs> you read oh, a book without deal. pictures. <laughs> <Big> like, <laughs> <whoop>. <laughs> it's like Ad Astra. So, Ad Astra is interesting. So, let me ask you, Zach, have you, do, you, do you like those movies like Interstellar? I've watched them, but I mean, I think... I think I can compare it to The Martian when I saw about okay. four years ago with Matt Damon. I right. thought that was pretty good. But I wouldn't say um, I like them. You know, I, I just, it depends. It depends. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. it depends on the trailer and what I see and who's playing in and if I'm interested in the movie. My thing with Ad Astra, so apparently there was a lot of hype behind it. I My only exposure to it was seeing the trailer a few weeks ago. And with um, Ad Astra, I got the same feeling from it that I got from The Martian, Gravity, Interstellar, and passengers. Okay. So it's like these movies that I mean, if you think about it, if you have all the CG effects in the world, what's like the easiest thing that you can do to make look real 
and people will buy it. In my opinion, it's space. That's, that's true. <laughs> because, you know, space, our, our well, concept of it is it's, like... It's funny because things haven't changed that much since the Atari. Because if you look at the Atari and old gaming libraries, it's all like Space Invader clone shooters because that was the easiest thing to put out on the right. old video game system. And here we are 40 years later. And what's the easiest sci-fi thing to do with all your special effects? Oh, space. Right. And... <laughs> No, I don't. I don't want to disparage the people who work on that movie or people who follow this stuff very closely. But in every single one of these space flicks, it looks like space because I think you and I don't have a concept of what space is. You see, Not people, a lot of people have been up there. So. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's this idea that if you're going to have a movie of a giant monster tearing down like New York, you know, Tokyo, right? Yeah. <sighs> What is the depth of well, difficulty in trying to get a guy to like that's the thing that pretend the, he's in zero G? I think the real reason is that, like you said, it's weightless if you're in space. It's really hard to get the sensation of weight in CGI and animation. So if you just have everybody in space where they're floating around, then you don't have to worry about that. And that cuts back the work and the, uh, the realism that you have to impart on your, uh, your animation. Right. Well, so these movies, trailer-wise... I've seen all of I've seen all the trailers, but I've never seen the movies. No. I can't tell you what the plot of any of them are. So I asked my parents. I was like, "What was the plot of Interstellar?" Because they saw it, and they said, "We have no idea." It was like <laughs> going through a wormhole and time travel, and someone's kid, and then they grow up, and it turns out that they're that person, and there was a ghost in the house. I was like, "Wait, there's a house? That was in space." It's like, "Oh yeah, there's like a house that they're in." It's like, okay, so I don't know what the plot of Ad Astra is. So it's apparently like Brad Pitt has to go. And like find his dad or something that was in a in a mission like years before. Yeah, it's something like that along those lines. I'm not totally sure about the um, clear permissions unless I look it up. But I think it goes along those lines of him trying to just find his father or find out what happened. What? So what is the hype around? Like I'm I'm guessing I'm missing something in terms of why it's so looked forward to. To tell you the truth, I really don't know. Who's okay. the director? I don't know. I just know it has Brad Pitt in it. Oh. I don't think Brad Pitt's really gets people hyped anymore. Uh, he does. Does he? Brad Pitt has like he has a good age. I like Brad Pitt. Don't get me wrong. I just didn't. I don't know. Do people go to movies sight unseen because it has Brad Pitt in them anymore? I see the director is James Gray. James okay. Gray. All right. Yeah, he's right. the director of the movie, and um, yeah, he's just the movie. It says right here. He's just um, he's go he journeys across a lawless solar system to find his missing father. Okay, and that's. I guess the plot. A lawless solar system. Mm-hmm. So is it a space western? I mean, that, <laughs> I would watch that, but this is kind of like they're burying the lead if that's what they're going with. Maybe secretly, it's actually an adaptation of uh, what's Silverhawks? Star- <laughs> Silverhawks, or is it Star Sheriffs? Is the other oh, one? Oh, Saber Riders. Saber Riders. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> or Galaxy Rangers. There are a lot of space cowboy cartoons in the eighties. Well, it's Brave kind of Star. like this. So it's like one of one of our favorite movies. Mark and I is a movie where it was a red herring. Because all the trailers told you it was going to be one thing. And then when you go into the theater, it's something else. And it's Cabin in the Woods. Yes. So Cabin in the Woods, trailers for it basically make it look like you're, you're like run of the mill. Evil Dead kind of thing. Evil Dead, Friday the 13th slasher movie. And then Mark goes to see it. And by coincidence, a friend of mine took me to see it at the same time. So I'm, I'm entering the theater as Mark is apparently leaving. And he texts me. And he's like, you need to see Cabin in the Woods. And I was like, well, I'm guess what? Coincidence. I'm actually heading into the theater right now to see it. So if, if you're interested in Cabin in the Woods and you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but basically <clears throat> what it boils down to is it's the unifying theory of horror movies. How basically <laughs> with one movie that explained how every horror movie in existence is tied to one thing. And it's mind-blowing Like when, when you see it. It's it so clever. It feels like the, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit of horror movies. 
uh-huh. in a way where it, it basically unifies all these different. They can't use the actual like horror movie characters for licensing reasons, but they have obvious approximations of them. But it creates a set universe and a set of rules on how they all operate and how they can all coexist. And it is very deconstructive. And if um, deconstructionism isn't as clever as you think it is, I think you'd still enjoy the movie. See, I've never heard of it before. Oh, my gosh. Zach, ah, well. it is on Netflix right now. So it's actually been added, I think, as of three months ago. So it's fresh. It shouldn't be leaving anytime soon. But don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah, you should watch it, and that way, next time when we meet, uh, we can talk about it because I think it'll blow your mind. It's 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 a comedy and a horror movie. Um, it's not scary in any way, shape, or form. It's yeah. more it's more like I kind of wish that there was like a comic based off of it because the premise is so good, right? When you see it, but basically, it's just teenagers who go into a cabin in the woods, and you find out there's this conspiracy about how all these like horror movies are connected to each other. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, if you watch it tonight. Trust me, you'll be like, thank you, Tim and Mark, for introducing <laughs> I me. I do that, too. <laughs> well, so, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so, so I like that, uh, Zach, that you haven't seen the movie, and we can tell you that um, don't go to Wikipedia, don't talk to anybody about it on your way home, and just go see it, because it's the movie's from 2012, so it's kind of rare nowadays to find people who at least don't know the trick of the movie. It's like um, we were on we were on the Bunderdome, I think, last week, and we were talking. Or no, we were on Nasser's show last week, and um, Nasser hadn't seen Sleepaway Camp, the original Sleepaway Camp. Oh boy! And I was like, oh, well, did you not uh, watch it, Nasser, because of the twist ending? And he's like, twist ending? What's what's the twist ending? And I was like, that was Matt the, Weldon. That was Matt, Matt Weldon. Weldon. Matt yes. Weldon. Yeah, he was on the show with us, and I was like, well, Matt. Um, you need to watch the movie because you are one of the only people on the planet who doesn't know that twist ending, and I envy you. So just go watch the movie and don't talk to a single person about it until you do. Well, and the thing is that Matt, he's a friend of ours, and I guess this is a good time to say this, and it's a good lead into a break, and we'll talk about it afterwards. But we're gonna, we have to talk about SpaCon because that's where we're going to be uh, for the next two days. So if you're listening and you're in the central Arkansas area, we'll have mentioned it several times in this four-hour period. But this weekend is SpaCon. Mark Pellegrini and me, we're both going to be there. Our friend Matt Weldon, he is the artist of Punchline. His uh, co-writer, co-producer, Bill Williams, creator of Punchline, he's going to be there too. And so uh, this is the first time they've been in Arkansas doing a convention, so it's really exciting. So what we're going to do is when we come back from our break, we're hey, going to talk a, a little bit more about it. about SpotCon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody wearing pointed ears? <laughs> it's SpaCon, not oh, SpaCon. It's in Hot Springs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, SpaCon though. That would be I don't know a very boring Star Trek. There probably is a SpaCon. We need to look that one up. <laughs> but we told someone that they were like SpaCon, and they said, "Oh, it's like a Star Trek convention." It's like, no. And they said, "Is it a jacuzzi convention?" I said, "Oh no, it's it's Hot Springs. Well, it's, it's a like spa city." When we tell people the name of our comic is Black Hops, like that's offensive. You should call it African American police officers. <laughs> no, no, it's Black Hops. Yeah. <laughs> With that, we're going to take our break. We'll be right back uh, in a few minutes here on the Dave Ellswick Show, and we are back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Coming up, we have a hard break, but in the meantime, one thing that we want to talk to you to everyone about is that. We are going to be at SpaCon this weekend. It's going to be great. Actually, it starts today, um, and we were supposed to be there. And I had to apologize because um, we're the VI, we're we're part of the VIP entourage. And this weekend, today only, I think at seven o'clock is what they call the Cybertronian spree. So if you've never seen these guys on YouTube, what they do is they dress in full uh, Transformers costumes. So they have like the full outfits and everything. They look like them. 
they're not just wearing like spandex or anything like that. They're actually um, wearing kind of these full, I don't know if it's cardboard or foam or whatever it might be. And what they do is they play songs from Transformers the movie and they rock out to it. So I told him, I said, hey, we're hosting the Dave Ellswick show and we're not going to be done until around the six o'clock hour and with rush hour and everything like that. It's going to be kind of tough to go over there. But the good thing is that I can tell all our listeners to see us at that show. This is going to be our third year actually doing that show. And we uh, can honestly say that in terms of the best shows that we've done in the country, it is one of the best ones that we have done for the last few years. I'd say probably in the last uh, in the top 10 for sure. And in the state of Arkansas, definitely in the top five. So it's always a good time. It's always good to have uh, to be invited over there. So we're very excited. And like I said, so if you don't know these guys, Matt Weldon and Bill Williams, they are a creative duo. They work on a monthly comic called Punchline that comes out through Antarctic Press. But they recently joined up with our agent and our people at Invasion Media. And so we are very happy that they're going to be joining us in our home t- in our home territory in Arkansas this weekend at SpotCon. Are you excited about SpotCon, Mark? Oh, yeah, I am. Barry Bostwick's going to be there, man. Barry Bostwick is going to be there. So they're <laughs> going to have a screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show tomorrow. So that's tomorrow night's event. Um, they're going to have him, and they're going to be showing that. But just look at the panel. Look at the guests. Every time we go there, I think it's surprising because we um, – I don't go to Hot Springs too often. Now, my parents do. They like going to Oakland. So they're actually there like once a week, but they're retired, so that's fine. So because I'm I'm there so rarely, the first time that we went to SpaCon, I didn't know what to expect because it's in Hot Springs. I don't go there too often. But man, oh man, like the whole city kind of comes to life. Everyone comes to this show. It's always like a lot of fun. Um, The guests that they've had in recent years have been really good. Last year, who did they have? Uh, It was that lady who I think was Foxy Brown. Uh, no, it wasn't Chris Summers. So they had, okay. um, oh, what? she played April O'Neil in the 2003 Ninja Turtles TV series, and she was the original voice of Ash Ketchum on Pokemon. Yes. Oh, I can't remember Patri- her name. Um, starts with a P, uh, right? I don't, I don't think so. Well, they had her, and I also can't remember his name, but uh, from The Hills Have Eyes, the original one, he was one of um, Jupiter's... I think it was the guy who played Pluto, but it was one of Jupiter's uh, crazy hillbillies that eats people. Okay. But, uh, he was there. Yeah, so they had, I mean, I, they may not sound like uh, high caliber guests to the sophisticated types, but for people who like horror movies, people who like anime and cartoons, they, they're they attractive guests. And um, who did they have the year before that, in the first year we went? Do you recall? It was someone, I remember there was one person in particular who... Were they from like Twin Peaks or something? They're from. No, no, no. It was... Um, Stranger Things. Oh yes, they had um, Barbara. Barbara. From Stranger Things. Yes. Yeah, she was there the first year. So they they get some very interesting offbeat guests that um, definitely have niche appeal. Yes. Last year they had Veronica Taylor. Veronica That's Taylor. That was her Ash. name. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of which, apparently Ash won the Pokemon League. I saw that. It was actually in the news. Of it was. That's how I knew about it. It was actually in the news because I didn't. <laughs> I, I don't watch Pokemon. I don't know anything I, about it. But apparently he loses every year. He, right? he's, he loses every year. <laughs> and I guess, you know, we're coming up on a hard break, but I will just say this. So I had to do a little research because I was like, what? You mean this is the first time Ash has won a Pokemon League? And then I thought to myself, well, he's he's lost all these other leagues, but that's good because in a way it kind of teaches kids, like, you yeah. don't win everything. You have to work and work well, and work. It's, it can, this is the 22nd season of Pokemon, 
So he lost 21 consecutive years in a row, and he's only 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, so he, he lost 21, what, you said 21, right? So he had 21 years of losses within 10 years of life, you know, somehow, because that's how TV works. <laughs> so he basically, he, he basically uh, went 21 years of, like, child cockfighting is essentially what it boils <laughs> yeah. down to, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I don't know, Zach, Zach's eyes just lit up. He's never thought of it that way. I never thought about it either. I actually stole that joke from Mark. So <laughs> if you think about it, it really is kind of that. Well, so that Pokemon an- – oh, sorry. No, that's okay. Well, the we're- Pokemon anime does not have the money involved. <laughs> well, what we're going to do now is we're coming on a hard break, but we'll be back after these messages. We're back. This is Timothy Lim filling in for Dave Ellswick. With me is my trusted co-host and sidekick, Mark Pellegrini. And also with us is our friend Zach. He is our switchboard operator. So as you heard, the lines are open if you're listening and you want to chime in. Feel free to do so. We can't guarantee anything because, like I said, in this four-hour period, we are going to have at least two of our guests calling in at 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, respectively. And I have two other people who might be calling in if their schedule permits. But in the meantime, I thought one thing we could talk about is something that happened this past week that not many people might have known about because I didn't even think about it until we were having this this live conversation a few uh, a few weeks ago with our friend Nasser Rabadi. He has a really great channel if you want to follow him on YouTube. It's Nasser Rabadi. He is a, a writer. He's very young. I think he's 22 years old out of Chicago. He's already self-published like three or four books, yeah. including a comic. But what we saw recently was on Tuesday and on Thursday <clears throat> here in central Little Rock, and we went to the rave, and I think it's the only place that fandom events was showing it. We saw this anime movie called Promare. Now, if you are on Netflix and you want a good show that you can watch and your children can watch and you can feel safe knowing that it's not going to propagandize to you, you really should check out Little Witch Academia. So I saw it first and then I liked it. Kind of felt weird because at first I thought, eh, maybe this is just like for girls. <laughs> but it's the, the, the show is so good because I think it speaks to anyone regardless of what your gender might be because it's not gender based. It just happens to take place in a high school where they uh, they teach witches. Now, in this world, witches, it's not really like a magical thing. Magic is like an energy that, that flows under the earth, and they can teach you how to tap into it. So if you're thinking about witchcraft and um, things like that, that has nothing really to do with it, nothing to do with the occult. That's almost just the vehicle for storytelling. But this was one of the best shows I'd watched. It, if The best way I can describe it is basically if you gave Ghibli the means to team up with Disney and create a series and i think it's 24 episodes and so it's all on netflix so i showed it to mark and mark is a very hard sell when it comes to anime and he liked it and then i showed it to my wife and my wife loves it but we talk to people all the time at conventions and it's kind of a niche thing not a lot of people know about it's it. it's on netflix but it's netflix exclusive so you can't buy the blu-rays and you can't uh, watch it on crunchyroll or anywhere else um so you kind of have to go to that one avenue to see it but i was glad that i did and i don't watch that much anime and I'm a pretty normie taste, but this was actually a pretty, it was a very casual show. You, and they also did two short film, um, short animated films about it that are also really good, but it's by a studio named Trigger. And if any of you out there watch anime, you may recognize Trigger. They did a uh, Tengen Topa Gurren Lagann. Um, they did uh, Kill a Kill and they did this movie. We were just about to talk about Promare. But they are a studio that's very Western-influenced, so their style, while it's in definitely aesthetically Japanese, it adds a lot of American cartoon flavors to it, so it's very approachable and uh, very appealing to Westerners. So for, for the people who aren't on the internet as much as we are, 
there's a term that they use to describe people who are fans of anime. They call them weeaboos. Yeah. Now, the, the the term that they use to describe trigger is they call them westaboos. So mm-hmm. westaboo is basically um, people who are from Japan or in the animation industry from uh, from Asia who like Western cartoons. And so sometimes you'll see these these cool mixes of things. And one thing that Studio Trigger does, or at least they did it with Little Witch Academia, is they put actually Western Easter eggs into their shows. So, for example, if you watch Gravity Falls, there's an episode where you can actually see Mabel and Dipper in, mm-hmm. in the crowd. And so it's they're very good. What I like about them personally is that they're experimental. So they do things for their animation for the sake of doing it because it's going to be cool for them to do. Um, for Little Witch Academia, it's much, much more toned down compared to their other works. Like mm-hmm. Gurren Logan is considered to be... Um, I guess in terms of like classic anime, it's like considered one of the best series you can watch. But it does have its moments where it has its fan service and uh, things that are probably not safe for children to yeah. see. Same thing is true for Kill a Kill. Do not show that to your children. But <laughs> Little Witch Academia is very good, very safe. Everyone I've recommended to has loved it. It's probably, I'd say, PG. You know, most of it, I would say, is G-rated. There's a little bit of language, but nothing too, too intense or too serious. But overall, it's a really good kid show. Yeah, one of our one of the people who are uh, who's our friend that we got to know from coming to shows all the time, Erica Garner. We recommended it to her back in our first show in March, and since then she saw the whole series and she loved it. But yeah, go on Netflix and you can see that there's three um, versions. You can find the the season one and season two, Little Witch Academia. You can watch the movie, The Enchanted Parade, and there's one just called Little Witch Academia, and that was a short film that was basically the pilot teaser based on a, a Kickstarter campaign that they ran, and they ran it successfully. So that was like kind of their taste of what they could do, and then they expanded it into a series. But we saw Promare. So mm-hmm. Promare is their first, I think, um, <clears throat> wide-release full-length movie that they've done. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with their previous fan franchises. It deals with these firefighters in a world where what happened was one day there was something called the Great Burning, I think. I think so, yeah. And what happened was... People were spontaneously combusting. Now, not in the sense of how we know it, where you die, but basically they, they're basically fire mutants. So imagine a world of X-Men where mutants didn't have various powers. They all just had the power of fire. And so it's this world where they have to fight these people called the Burnish. And there's a twist sort of at the end where you find out kind of the history of the Burnish and what they do. Mm-hmm. But Mark is a hard sell on anime. So I wanted to watch it because I watch everything Studio Trigger does. And uh, I took him along for the ride, uh, kicking and screaming, because, you know, he doesn't like anime, or he's not as big into it as maybe I am. And I'm not even that big into it. I mean, uh, some people might call me a weeb or a weeaboo for fun, but the reality is that I I consider myself to have pretty normie tastes when it comes to anime. So I I wanted to hear Mark's take on it, because he's the critic. So Promare, again, the the plot of the movie is that you have these people called the Burnish, who are genetic mutations, who basically spew this sort of energy fire that's that's not going to burn people but it does burn property and so these people become outlaws and it's um n- they're not all villains they just have this genetic mutation that they can't control and so a new a new firefighting unit um led by this uh new re- well not led by his new recruit named gallo who's the the blowhard who does these like burning justice oh i must succeed speeches he's a member of this firefighting unit who basically have to put out the flames that the burnish cause and then capture the burnish and take them to be incarcerated. And they fight these villains, who, um, led by a guy named Leo, who's a uh, burnished terrorist. 
But then they find out what's happening to the burnished people after they get um, incarcerated. And there's this big human rights issue um, that puts a gray area between the uh, between Leo, the terrorist, and Gallo, the firefighter. And if you've watched any Studio Trigger stuff, you kind of know where this is going, especially even Little Witch. There are these two characters who are on opposite ends of the spectrum, and they hate each other. And then they have to come together at the end and team up to fight you know, the real villain, um, which is a, a very uh, standard thing for Trigger. Uh, they did it in Little Witch Academia, and they do it in a lot of their programs. Um, but the main attraction for uh, Promare is the animation, which is spectacular. It's the kind of film we don't make in the U.S. and the kind of film that we don't see uh, in our theaters here very often. Um, this was actually – what was the name of the company that that did this? Um, they did what? Uh, that released the movie in the U.S. Uh, G4 Kids, is it? Yeah, G, yeah, G Kids. That was it. And G Kids does offbeat animation. They actually got the license for Ghibli films from Disney after Disney let it lapse. Um, and this was like a rave event, so it was only like two nights only in the U.S. to, to see the movie. But if you really want to see something different that doesn't look like Disney, that doesn't look like DreamWorks – you know, this is your opportunity to go see an animated film that's really offbeat and something you're not going to have the opportunity to see very often. If you're listening on live radio, wherever you are in the country, just look up your show times. Um, I'm guessing that in bigger cities, it's probably playing for multiple nights. Here in Little Rock, it's only playing for two nights, uh, Tuesday and Thursday. So if you miss it, you missed it. But I'm guessing it's going to come to um, Blu-ray or Netflix yeah. or Crunchyroll at What's any time a, in the What was in the it future. rated, Tim? It was rated PG. Yeah, so it's it's really appropriate for kids. Um, I can't recall any language in there, and the violence is all very stylized. I don't even think there's any like outright death either. It's um it's all very fun, is what the movie is. There's there's a deeper uh, storyline in there, but all of Trigger stuff has a very um, tongue in cheek aspect to it. They they like to have fun with what they do, and they like to joke about what they do. So the movie. Even when it's getting into darker territory like human rights issues, it doesn't lay it on thick and it doesn't get too dark with it. So I need to ask, um, this ties into it. Mark, how old were you when Dragon Ball Z aired? Well, um, when it first aired in the U.S., I know it was 1996 because it came on at 5 in the morning uh, before school. But I didn't watch it when it first aired. Nobody did. I didn't watch it until it aired in 1998 on Toonami. Um, in the afternoons, and I was 13, so I was just exactly the right age to uh, enjoy Dragon Ball Z when it really hit the mark in the U.S. So the reason I say that is this, so this is my secret. Well, not secret. If you've been paying attention or watched my uh, other streams on YouTube or wherever, then you know this already. I don't like anime, and <laughs> part of it was because I think I came in too late with Dragon Ball Z. So I started high school in 2000. So as I was entering that phase, I, was, I wasn't I was dipping out of cartoons, but it was one of those things where I couldn't keep up with anymore. So Dragon Ball Z came on the scene, <clears throat> and my cousin liked it. And so we'd watch it. And this is my biggest complaint about anime, because mm-hmm. it seems like they, they all do this, okay? But I, I'm just going to pick on Dragon Ball, because it's an easy target. I really don't like it when people stand around, and for like a minute, they just go, Oh, 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 oh. They, so they make that sound yeah, when they, and their eyes are twitching and you're thinking that they're having like an epileptic seizure or something <laughs> and all they're doing is just staring because some some guy's powering up yeah. or something like that and so what I've liked about Trigger is that in their cartoons they don't do that there's no filler yeah. where they're they're trying to dip into that which is like a trope and I think so Mark I think your theory or I don't know if it's confirmed mm-hmm. or not is the reason they do that is because you can actually save on frame rates and animation. Yes, you, you know? can. So um, Japanese animation, people you know, 
is lauded for the high quality of its animation. But if you go and you watch any given episode of a TV series, there will be about a 30-second to maybe minute, minute and a half sequence where all the budget was blown, usually during an action sequence in the third act that looks amazing. But the remaining 20 minutes and 30 seconds of the episode is a lot of slow pans across backgrounds, a lot of um, talking headshots where they only animate the mouth, not even a lip sync, just the mouth getting big, getting small, getting big, getting small, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking kind of thing. They, they're they very good at covering their tracks most of the time on where they cut corners on their animation, and they can be very artistic with it. Um, even Promare, um, which is a feature film that has a lot of beautiful animation, they also have those long pans across backgrounds and scenes where the camera is just um, focusing on a candle while characters not in frame are talking, and we're just watching this candle flicker. And you can tell, oh, that probably saved them $1,000 in animation right there, just focusing on that candle. You know, it's a little obvious sometimes if you're looking for it. Um, Dragon Ball Z, yeah, has a lot of the characters just standing there and watching someone power up, and they, they take it to the extreme now, where it's like now, five minutes. <laughs> now, again, I love you two, but you know, you can't get on my favorite Dragon Ball Z like that. Now. So do you oh, like that, Zach? That was, actually, that was my starting point for anime. Oh, but oh, I meant, yeah. do, you, do you like that when they're powering up? See, I was just a kid. <laughs> yeah, you, you weren't. Uh, you didn't care when you were a kid. So when Dragon Ball Z first aired in 1998, and I was a kid, that was. Um, it's different from the Dragon Ball Z. You can go to um, Best Buy and buy on DVD now. It had a different dub with different actors. It had different music. It was edited differently. Um, it was done by the production was done by Saban, and the voice cast was from Canada, from people known as the Ocean Group. So that's where the uh, the it's over nine thousand meme yeah. comes from. It's from that original 1998 dub, which. Okay. Is personally, that's my wheelhouse for Dragon Ball Z. My interest in Dragon Ball Z begins and ends with that version of the show that I watched as a kid. So, so Zach, you like <laughs> Dragon Ball Z? Do you know you know the Grand Kai? Yeah. So he's the guy who is uh, who's one of the people who might be calling in. Really? Um, he's a comedian. Okay. And so he did the original Ocean Dub for the Grand Kai and Bubbles mm-hmm. and Oolong. So all oh. three of them. But after Funimation took over, they kept the Grand Kai, yeah. but he they they redubbed. I think it was Chris Sabat who took over yeah. for those two other characters. Um, but the other thing about Dragon Ball Z I was going to tell you that I don't like <clears throat> is, and it's another trope, but every anime does it, is whenever a character does a power-up, they have to yell their move. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I get it. That's cool. I like it in Street Fighter because in Street <laughs> Fighter it's cool when they do it. But what they do in Trigger, which is a trigger trope, is you do have those moments where the character will like say their move, but everyone's aware that it's kind of ridiculous. So what happens in Promare is this scene where he has like this stomping action where he's like, you know, super justice burning kick. And he's trying to like stomp this uh, battle cruiser, and so it looks epic the way they they animate it. But then they pan out so okay. you can actually see like people watching it, mm-hmm. and he's literally just like stop stepping on the ground. Like it's not as epic as it looks. So, so they're very aware of yeah. The way they frame the action in anime is they do a lot of uh, tight angles and very and close ups. So when someone is doing crazy poses and kicking and spinning around, the camera's always moving and the camera's always close in on them. But if you were to back the camera away, you know, 20 feet and keep it steady. And you just watch this idiot jumping around, you know, and, and whirling like a, like a freak on the ground. And it would look very silly. We're going to take a soft break. But when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. And I believe that uh, in a few minutes, Doug Tenable himself will be calling. Uh, I'll check up on it in my text messages here in just a second. But we'll be back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Stimulating talk with Dave Ellswick. It's stimulating talk with Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini <laughs> and Zach. Here in the studio, filling in for Dave Ellswick. We only have a few more minutes, about six minutes, until uh, we reach the top of the hour. So we were talking about Dragon Ball Z before the show ended, and then uh, we had the conversation off the air, kept on going, and then 
I just decided that in order to wrap it up, I guess here's one thing we'll, we'll talk about. Well, what's your stimulating uh, concept? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but we have to keep this very friendly because <laughs> it's a family-friendly show. So he met, Mark mentioned a name that occurred to me. You don't hear very much whenever this topic comes up. <clears throat> in Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball, who is the best female character? Huh? And the one name that you never hear mentioned is Chi Chi. Because she, so Chi Chi in the original Dragon Ball, to be fair, was just a cute kid who had a crush on Goku and they got married at the end of the original Dragon Ball series. And then Dragon Ball Z, though, uh, they turned her into like the prototypical tiger mom and just they made her awful. Like she, she was supposed to encapsulate everything the, the target demographic of Japanese kids hate about their mom you know so they could identify domineering the domineering study 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 you got to be a scholar you got to be a doctor or a lawyer study no fighting no having fun study 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 and they just made made her awful um but the problem he said who's the best girl in dragon ball is and when you think about it ah, they're all really abrasive and obnoxious like bulma i mean a lot of people like bulma a lot of people like Bulma, but they don't. Really, I don't think they like her for her personality. I think oh. they like her for some reasons. I will not name. Nice. Well, right the thing here. is, Bulma. I, I don't know. Like, okay, I, so I don't, I'm not a. I'm not a, a scholar of it, like you guys are. But Bul. I mean, first of all, the show's like fairly family friendly, so yeah. I don't see Bulma in that way. Yeah. Plus, after she gets married to Vegeta, she kind of vanishes, doesn't she? Well, so no, she doesn't really <clears throat> vanish because she's taking care of like Trunks, but uh, she's just um. She had, they should do more with her in Super regarding her uh, like marriage to Vegeta. I remember Dragon right. Ball Z was like they. Well, I'm not even sure if they were married in Dragon Ball. They just had a kid, but um, they just kind of like oh yeah they uh, they hooked up and here's Trunks. Um, and now they're we're never going to frame them together in, in the show. Um, but no, Bulma was uh, she was, had a very nasty personality, but she was still friends with everybody. She's kind of reminded me of like Sailor Mars from Sailor Moon. I didn't watch a lot of Sailor Moon, but I know you sure did. You did it. Uh, you uh, it. But it on came, me, why don't it you? came on after Thundercats on Toonami, but no, I didn't yes. really get into it. But I remember that Sailor Mars was the one who had the really uh, nasty, angry attitude. If, if I remember that correct, Tim? Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I do watch a lot. I did watch a lot of Sailor Moon. <laughs> you I watched the new one, too. I started watching Sailor Moon Crystal. Very good. Yeah. So if you want the condensed version of Sailor Moon, just watch but Sailor Moon Crystal. There, there are people who like that personality. So Bulma, I think, is a she's kind of like a middle point. She's not as nasty as Chi-Chi is. She's, she doesn't get as absolutely obnoxious, but she does have you know a very fiery personality. Um, but I remember the one character that I liked as a kid uh, was uh, Launch. Uh, I was gonna say, launch, that I think she was at the least best. Felt fair because when she had her blue hair, she was really nice and sweet and likable. But you knew when she was gonna turn into a terrible person because she sneezed and she turned blonde and then she'd shoot everybody, and it was a gag. So there was like two characters in one. Um, I don't think anybody likes uh, like Pan. I don't think anybody really likes Videl. What about Andrew, Android 18? Oh, yeah, Android 18. Okay, actually, she was pretty good because she was pretty – she killed a lot of people, though, <laughs> but she was pretty mellow. So, Zach, who is your favorite uh, lady character in Dragon Ball Z? I would have to say Android 18. Android yeah, 18? Yeah. yeah. Android and 18. I, I hear it's because she has a bigger role in Dragon Ball Super, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She's, in the, she's actually in the tournament fighting with Krillin and yes. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed this about launch, though? So if, if that were to come out today – like, honestly, if that were to come out today, it would actually kind of trigger me because it's like, you mean to tell me that the aggressive one is the blonde and not the blue-haired lady? <laughs> like, nowadays, it's the opposite. It's so the blue-haired lady. It was a Japanese show from a Japanese perspective. So the blue-haired one, blue is often used um, for, like, dark hairs in, in Japanese anime. So the Japanese-looking launch was very mellow and demure and pleasant. The blonde Western launch oh. had guns and shot everybody and was very abrasive and loud. So it was kind of 
one of Toriyama's little commentaries. So you're actually blowing my mind right yeah. now. I've been watching a lot of anime recently where it's always like either the the overt American or mm-hmm. the blonde blue eyed character who's the one who's feisty. Oh yeah, like yeah. they're always loud and obnoxious. They, they see you know our women as being very vocal and opinionated, whereas the ah. traditional Japanese not saying like geisha like, but yeah, the traditional Japanese woman is, is uh, considered subservient and you know, not so much anymore in today's. Uh, Japan, but that was the traditional role. We have one minute left, and so I want to ask you just real quick, Mark. So in 30 seconds, sum this up for me. But why is it in anime that you'll have classrooms and everyone has different hair colors? Is it because of diversity, or is it because... It's so you can tell the characters apart. That, is that really it? <laughs> if they're all sitting there it's with kind black of ra- hair, I mean, they'd all look the same. That's no kind of racist. Up. Are you telling me the Japanese are racist? Yeah, the Japanese are very racist. Oh, they are. They are very ethnocentric. That <laughs> is for are. sure. Ethnocentric. That's but, a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very nice way of putting it. Well, we're excited. You know, this wraps up one hour uh, of us filling in with for the Dave Ellswick show. There's still three hours lined up, and we have two stellar people who are going to be calling in anytime soon. We're going to have Chuck Dixon, and we're going to have Doug Tenaple who are going to be calling in. Doug Tenaple should be calling in either any minute now or by the time we return at the top of the hour. So we're really excited for that. But anyway. This is Timothy Lim, Mark Pellegrini. We're in studio with Zach, our operator, standing by. We will come back at the top of the hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. It is 3 o'clock Central Standard Time. If you're listening somewhere in the United States, welcome back. I am Dr. Timothy Lim, hosting for Dave Ellswick today. He is away at the moment, and I'm with my trusted co-host and co-conspirator, Mark Pellegrini. He's in studio, too. Say nice hi, Mark. save, because you said I'm here with Mike. And then he turned it to a trusted <laughs> co-host, Mark Pellegrini. I know. I added that little thing at the end, didn't I? I kind of misspoke there. Uh, and with us, too, in the studio is Zach, our operator, standing by. But most importantly, we're very excited because just as we promised at the top of the last hour, uh, we said that we would have two guests calling in, and our first one has just been put through. We have the incredible legendary uh, creator of Earthworm Jim himself, Doug Tenaple, is on the phone standing by. How's it going, Doug? Good, Dr. Lim. <laughs> You've been a busy man, so I just saw this update. Uh, we need to tell our viewers out there. So Doug Tenaple, creator of Earthworm Jim, he was able to get the rights back to work on the comic version that he's always wanted to tell regarding the origins of Earthworm Jim. And he has the distinction of having the largest crowdfunded comic in Indiegogo history. So the, the his his campaign ended, but it's an in-demand, which means that Essentially, if you missed it, you can still pledge and back it uh, for, what, one week more, if I'm not mistaken? That's correct, Tim. For one more week, uh, people can still get the Earthworm Jim comic. And I'm looking for more readers. I always need more readers. But after a week, I close the store down, then I have to go to print with it. Well, that's exciting. It's a really handsome book. It's really beautiful, really fun. Go ahead. No, I was about to say, it's really exciting. Everyone that I've talked to seems to be very they love seeing your progress with it because that's something that Mark and I, we're, we're new to all of this. And so one of the things that we do, which we were open to an opinion about, is we like to kind of play our cards close to our chest. So, for example, with Black Ops, I rarely show much of anything. We're very selective in what we pick, whereas I think it's that um, you're so confident in your storytelling and confident in what you feel like will sell itself, which is the quality of the book, that almost daily on your show – you show the progress of it, whether it be um, Catherine coloring it or Eric lettering it or yeah. you penciling and inking it. So um, for people listening, Doug Tenable has a show. It's almost daily. It's called The Doug Show. It's on YouTube. It's free to watch. 
no subscription needed. Um, I don't know if it's a regularly regularly scheduled time, but typically you tend to do it in the mornings. Is that correct? Yeah, about 11 a.m., around 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And, uh, you know, today we had a big discussion on, on God, and on I share the gospel with nonbelievers, and uh, we get in arguments, political debates, <laughs> religious debates. Just look up Doug Tenapel on YouTube, and every day at 11 I do the Doug Show. Yeah, and that's one thing that it's part of your brand and it's kind of part of our brand. We have some people who are kind of detractors and they kind of don't like us talking about this. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> yeah. but I've, you know, one, you know, we're inspired by you because one thing that Mark and I have going for us is that when we started doing comics a year ago, we, you know, we, we would always hear this kind of um, thing where it's like, well, we don't want politics in our books. We don't like pe- hearing people's opinions. And I like listening to customers and hearing that type of thing. So I used to say, well, how come Mark and I get a pass? And they say, well, we give you a pass because you started doing political books. So we almost see it like you were political cartoonists. And because that was what we were primed to think, it doesn't matter if you venture off and do something else because we always will know you guys as that. And I think that that's something that guys like you, guys like Mike Miller have done, which is you've never shied away from that being integral to who you are and integral to not necessarily your storytelling, but integral to the quality of who you are as a person. And so I think I think people are very sure. forgiving of it. You have to be kind of hiding under a rock to be like, oh, Doug Tenable talks about God? Like, <laughs> I'm not buying anything of his. Yeah, I, and I get a lot of that from, from some of my very hard left audience. Just they can't stomach the idea that I'm a Christian or a conservative, and they can't buy the work anymore. They're just like, I won't buy this anymore. Uh, it's like, and I just they... always thought, go ahead. Go no, ahead I was just going to say, like, what were they expecting? The guy from Veggie Tales is a Christian? Oh, yeah. my mind is blown. <laughs> yeah. Well, for tw- I've been public about my faith just forever. I just always thought if Christ uh, publicly died for me and took my shame, that I would publicly wear his name anytime, anywhere. And I owe no man much of an explanation or, or, or shame over it. Today, in today's culture, though, we're being kind of uh, programmed to vote with what we buy, mm-hmm. and uh, there's all there's a good side to it, you know, with Chick Fil A and stuff. Like, there's a bad side of it when we get hit for our personal beliefs that may not even appear in the book, and it's just another form of kind of uh, culture trying to indoctrinate us by uh, a light form of business persecution, where they're trying to shut you up. And I have a big mouth and no one shuts me up. No one can um, make me articu- uh, uh, hide my faith or even my politics in America, because America is another. We live in rare times to get to be vocal about our disagreement, and I intend to keep doing it. It's certainly easy to do today. It's getting harder, but it's okay. It's part of um, it's kind of part of what man does uh, to each other from time to time. One thing that we're not going to go into into real in-depth into this, because I know some of the listeners who are regular Dave Ellswick's fans, they might, not, they might not even know what happens online or on the internet. But one thing that Mark and I were kind of reminiscing about was that this year alone, we've had a very good year in terms of our productivity. We did two major national hits. So we were on with Jack Posobiec yeah. on One American News, and then we were on two days later with Sebastian Gorka on America First. And... People are shocked because they're like, you must get a lot of attacks from the left. And I said, in 2019, we did not get one single attack. Not one single media went after us. Not one single 
uh, pundit went after us, and they're like, oh, so um, you must be stress-free. And I said, no, no, no. You won't believe who comes after us. It's people on the yeah. right who come after us. And yeah. it's like, why? So yeah. They don't want us talking about politics. And they said, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have a platform to articulate in a humorous way, and it's not offensive. All of our books, even the Trump ones, they're very lighthearted. They're very... There, we yeah. we want it to be pure satire in terms of how we present it. So I know that you obviously have a bigger media reach. You have a bigger platform. Um, I know that you've probably experienced some of the same things that we have, but probably to a larger scale. Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal experience dealing with the left and right? Sure. Um, it's The reason why it happens on the right is the right is actually getting uh, infected by some of the tactics of the left. So boycotts and um, and depersoning, deplatforming people and things like that. It's happening on the very far right. Or, or I would I also think of those people who are hitting us, Tim, as being really kind of liberals in disguise. I don't think they're true conservatives because they don't walk conservative principles. And to me, I judge people based on uh, how they act, not what they say their ideology is. So if someone. Um, you know, say lowers standards for themselves and then raises them for others. That's that's a liberal tactic. And to me, that is not conservative. So they can say they're conservative all they want. If they do that, then, you know, you start to see clues on how people act. And I'm not, you know, and we're, we're in times now. This is what happens on the Internet for people who are not familiar with the Internet. You know, Twitter is just a, a dumpster. <laughs> they, they just... People just spew all day. It's their hobby even just to come in and just trash projects, try to get me deplatformed. They go after my bosses and stuff like that and try and get them to remove the license from me or, or drop my business. That's kind of something that I think a lot of conservatives experience now where they come after your personal business because of your religion or your politics. And the, I think the the saddest thing about it is especially – I don't even know if it's a hot-button topic. I'm guessing not because we live in the Bible Belt. We live in the Deep South. And here, yes, you're going to yeah. have some conservatives who might be of like an LGBTQ plus XYZ persuasion, whatever it might be. But there's this general yeah. understanding that you cannot be surprised if you're talking to a person who says they're Christian and say that they don't agree with gay marriage. And that's not unusual. We're politicizing the unpolitical. A decade right. ago – People thought that this was never going to happen. They thought that that the notion of a legalized gay marriage was a, a fantasy that was not meant to be. And we're living in kind of like a clown world now, obviously. And and still the country is divided on the issue. Even people who statistically might have been for it, um, let's say, eight years ago, they've probably reversed their views when they actually see kind of like the declining rates of marriage in the country and single child households and things of this nature. So the thing that gets me especially because this has happened with um, you know yourself and with another creator who might be calling in later on today, Mike Miller, is this idea that if oh, you cool. have a if you have a Christian creator who says that they're Christian, and they say I do not agree with the agenda of the LGBTQ community, if you're a fellow Christian, you can't be surprised by that. That is par for the course. That's normal. And so I always tell people yeah, I, be very I've had wary fellow of those Christians. People. I've had fellow Christians and fellow Republicans call those views homophobic. Right. And, and I, I thought that was very strange. I go, wow, you sound just like the left because I oppose uh, gay marriage and gay coupling because I'm a, I'm a biblical Christian. I don't see what's radical about it. I don't hate anybody. I haven't. Yeah, in fact, I hire 
homosexuals on my projects all the time. I, I employ them and leftists try to get me fired. It's because we're actually tolerant. Well, not just that, um, but it's also – think... go ahead. Uh, we're, I, I just think we're, we're culturally we're in a strange time now where maybe maybe we have too much free time and too much wealth and too easy of a life that we're starting to pick fights way down deep in the grass and in the minutia uh, within our own uh, side, asking for purity statements and things like that. I, I don't get it. I just really I just always wanted to just make art, make comics. I make video games. I make TV shows. And uh, there's always someone trying to tell you, no, this week it, it may be over gay marriage. Next week it may be over environmentalism. Well, uh, tell me, Doug. So the, the problem is that when somebody makes a fuss about something, they actually get results, which is sad. Someone caves. And this has been yeah. happening a lot with The Simpsons. Um, after that Michael Jackson documentary came out, which a lot of holes have been poked in, and a lot of people have said that that was a very biased documentary, but Al Jean, the showrunner yeah. of The Simpsons, responded immediately to that documentary by pulling the Michael Jackson episode from season three of The Simpsons from home video and streaming releases and reruns. And so it's just been wiped from from history unless you have an old DVD or a tape of it. And they were yeah. going to do the same thing with Apu after that. Um, the problem with the Apu documentary came out, but uh, Matt Groening actually stepped in and ran interference on that. So they may change Apu or diminish his um, presence, but they were planning on getting rid of him all in response to the potential negative reaction just from these um, outraged documentaries. And instead of standing yeah. up to these people, instead of standing behind your creation, people, they cave to the popular demand. And that's happened so yeah. much lately, and it's very disappointing. It's because they, they ha no one has a core anymore. They don't have a core belief system where you stand up for what you believe in and you say, no, I know this to be true. And so I won't take it off the air on principle. If you don't have a core and you don't know what you believe, then as soon as someone starts making any noise in your little, your worldview, poor self-image, you go, I got to go along with the crowd here. I better just take, even though it's wrong, and I don't believe it. I'll take this off the air. It's people are, are afraid. They're like, just hit, hit me last. Don't just come after me last. I'll cave on whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, if someone were to, if someone were to release a documentary say, uh, saying, like, uh, I'm an Earthworm Jim fan, but the problem with Psycho is that making the, the black-feathered character, the villain, is racist, uh, your response, yeah. I would hope, wouldn't be like, oh, I'm just going to pull Psycho from my comic in any of the future Earthworm Jim games and just pretend like he never existed. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I just, I, I double down on my beliefs, and I don't, ch I, I don't change my beliefs, and it makes people even, they go, oh, we have to step up our, our uh, boycotts against him in the left. You know, I'm blackballed on so many uh, left-wing, um, like, video game media. Hmm. They're not allowed to even re positive review any of my stuff. They're not allowed to bring it up. Doug, if you and don't it's mind. It's all because I'm a, I'm a conservative Christian. If you don't mind, we're going to take a soft break. If you can stay with us for an, another 15 to 17 minutes, that would be great. Sure. Um, but this has been sure. a really good conversation. When we come back, we'll fi we'll finish up that conversation and talk a little bit more about your current projects and projects coming up. I think viewers will really like to, to hear what you have to say. Okay, we'll be back okay. here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And we're back. This is Dr. Timothy Lim and Mark Pellegrini in the studio. Uh, out of the studio, but joining us today is the legendary creator of Earthworm Jim and a prolific creator on his own right with you know just a huge resume of things that he's worked on. 
Doug Tenaple, um, he's joined us for a few minutes here to just talk about his, his current projects. Uh, the one he's working on right now is Earthworm Jim. Yes, there is a comic currently on Indiegogo. It, he has made a lot of money on the project itself just from dedicated fans and backers who love him, who love his work. Make sure to go on Indiegogo and check it out, Earthworm Jim. It's going to be available for one more week, and then he's going to go into the fulfillment process. So, Doug, when we left off, we were talking about kind of this problem with, you know, I think part of the thing was that Mark and I were seeing this as like a left-right dilemma. And as time has gone by in the short span of two years, we've noticed that a lot of the behaviors that were problematic on the left, we see them also in the right. And I just want to tell all the listeners out there that if you go on YouTube and look at The Doug Show, which he airs um, five days a week, typically in the mornings, What's great about it is that you have a very scholarly view of everything, politics and religion. And I find it very difficult for anyone to watch your show and get offended. Um, I know that, for example, I'm a Catholic and you're an evangelical. But there are so many moments where and – and please don't take this the wrong way. But there are so many moments where sometimes it's kind of hard to tell um, if you don't know what your view on Christianity is because you actually you, – you look at it from such an objective way. And one of the things that I know that – um, happened a few days ago. I happened to catch a stream where you had Adam Friend on, and it was this idea of apologetics versus kind of like a, a, yeah. a an emotive response to Christianity. And I love that. I almost wish that you guys had gone on for like another forty minutes because I was like, I love the apologetics because you know, not to say yeah. that, not to say that there aren't those moments of the sublime where I feel a, a spiritual resonance, but I appreciate God from a very um, mental point of view. Um, so I just want to tell listeners to make sure to, to tune in and hear that. But we have about four minutes remaining. Is there anything that you want to tell our audience in terms of what you're working on right now uh, and things that you have planned in the future? Sure. I'm I'm just finishing up the campaign for the Earthworm Jim comic book, and that means I'm I'm penciling and inking pages all day and night. <laughs> and I and then we go into uh, we go into printing. But it's basically it's three full books that I'm actually doing with this campaign. There's Earthworm Jim. There's the making of that talks about how we created the one of the most popular video games of the 1990s that really launched the modern video game movement. It became Earthworm Jim became a TV show, an animated series and a toy line. And I created him. I'm just a kid from a a farm town who just kind of uh, drew his whole life. And I I feel blessed. I mean, I, I, I would call it lucky, but uh, we have a worldview that, that doesn't necessarily believe in luck. But um, I just I just kind of feel very, um, you know, grateful that I had this opportunity. And now I finally get to tell this giant epic story, and I'm a natural storyteller. And a lot of it has to do with kind of following in the footsteps of my heroes like Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. And, of course, the greatest uh, story creator of all time is God. So I, I like, uh, and we're his characters in, in his story. So I, I kind of like paying tribute to him just with a great uh, joy and love of cartooning. And uh, I draw a lot of goofy monsters. It's all family friendly. But um, I just, and I like making people laugh and making people smile. And in today's culture, uh, that's too much to ask for, I guess, because people are just like, how dare you? And I'm just like, look, I'm here to entertain you. I want to make something that you're going to love. And they're like, uh, you have to stop. We have to stop you. <laughs> you must be stopped. Well, you know, you know the position of Mark and I. Too many people happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know the position of Mark and I, and you have a lot of friends who have your back, and uh, we we appreciate yeah. what you've done. 
um, I was actually talking to a couple of people the other day, and uh, they're they're kind of like in the same position where we are, where they feel maligned and they shouldn't be because we're kind of on the same side politically and religiously. And so a lot of us pointed to you and said that they had the courage to say something because they saw you leading by example. And I know that's the case for me, too. Yeah. I feel a little bit more emboldened every day because I know that if you could do it, I could do it and other people can do it, too. Yeah. So I hope you I hope you and recognize you may, that. You may not know this, Tim, but you've been a huge encouragement to me, too. So I've provided courage for you. But seeing you um, work, just put out better stories this year and just putting your head down, though you've been completely abused by the left and you just keep putting out the work. That's our message is like, you're not going to stop us. We're going to keep up on our quality. So you can't deny that we're make, telling great stories. And in a way, we're not going to let you uh, cancel us and berate us into silence. And sometimes you just you don't have to respond to everything because they're just going to keep dumping garbage on your porch. and You're going to keep making beautiful things. That That's just kind of where we're at. That's OK. That's it. And, you know, one of the things that I know that um, it wasn't it wasn't in the Bible, but Ben Franklin said it, I think I might be misquoting here, but. Yeah. God helps those who helps themselves. And so sometimes the best thing that you can do is use the talents that God gives you, create something. And hopefully that's the example that you lead by and people will glom onto it. And I know that um, you are a prolific uh, storyteller, prolific writer and creator. We have about 10, uh, we have about uh, six minutes, no, 10 seconds left. Uh, so we're going to close off here. But Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we can do this again. Please follow him on YouTube, The Doug Show, and support him on Indiegogo. Thank you very much, Doug. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Hey, good. And we're back. It is 3.30, and I am excited to say that we might have a guest joining us here in a few minutes. I, want, I don't want to spoil it for anyone uh, if or when he calls in, but it should be pretty soon. So we're going to keep uh, on high alert for that. But that was a great call that we just had with Doug to Naple. Mm -hmm. If you missed it, I'm sure that there's ways of watching it on replay. Uh, normally, there's a podcast version that comes out that people can get caught up on. But we were joined with Doug Tenaple for 30 minutes talking about Earthworm Jim, talking about politics in the in the comics industry and what it's like working as a conservative. Because this is the Dave Ellswick show. People know that his listening audience tends to be mostly libertarian and right-leaning. So we like it when we have our creators who can come on. Obviously, Mark and I, yeah. we work on political books. A lot of people think we're political cartoonists and Satirist, so I guess we have that kind of immunity, don't yeah. we? Well, we do. The we started doing political books is a thing, so that's why people make that assumption about us. So even when we do books that aren't political, like Black Ops, you know, people kind of have that bias where they, oh, that must be another one of their uh, Trump books. Like Black Ops is not a Trump book. Um, you can pick that up regardless of what side of the uh, the fence you're on. Uh, but uh, most of our books that people know us the most for because we got the most. Um, media coverage if you want to call it that is for uh thump the first hundred days and for um wall night yeah and it's been fun i mean honestly yeah. in the last two years have been kind of a, a ride so a little bit of background mark and i have only been doing comics for less than two years we started mm -hmm. our first one was in january our first book like our first published book was november of 2017 so coming this november it will mark exactly two years of doing this and we haven't had everything figured out, but yeah. as far as like a lot of the big logistical hurdles, I say we did pretty good. I think so too. So as far as our Indiegogo campaigns are concerned, I think the latest we ever we ever were was on um, Trump Space Force, and it was literally like three weeks um, late. And that's the worst we've done. Everything else has actually been either early or right on time. Yeah, three. We were three weeks late on Trump Space Force. We were supposed to deliver in November. The first book arrived into the hands of Captain Philip Cummings on December <laughs> the twenty fourth. 
So on Christmas Eve, so we were about 24, 30 days um, late, and we've learned a lot since then. We got a lot of flack for that, by the way. Yeah, and for being so 30 days for late. For being 30 there, days late. Yeah. And, well, we're not going to mention some of these other people, yeah. but it's this idea that, hey, for a couple of amateurs who have really never done this before, we're doing pretty good. And we haven't been late since then. And we haven't been late. Walmart, we were actually two months early. So Mark and I have this hybrid model of how we do our, our crowdfunding. So we work with Antarctic Press. They've been very kind to us. They publish pretty much all of our books. They get first pass at everything, and so far they've liked everything that they've seen. But the way it works is that we crowdfund things on the front end, and so what you're going to get is a special version of it. So we're going to have an upgraded cover, better binding, extra pages. A little bit of a higher price tag, but it also serves as a metric <clears throat> For Antarctic Press to decide if it's something they'd be interested in or not. And so that way, we we not only get to double dip, but Antarctic Press gets to help themselves, and they get to help retailers too. Because for people who are not aware of it, the comic book industry is, I don't want to say it's dying because it's a bit hyperbolic, but it's on a downward spiral at the moment. Um, within the last, I want to say two years, there have been at least 50 plus stores nationwide that have shut down. And we don't want that because we we like comic book stores. We grew up with them. Uh, we still go to them. <clears throat> in fact, our local store, the comic book store run by Michael Tierney and Collector's Edition in North Little Rock, I've been going there since I was five years old. He's one of the best businessmen that I've ever met. He stayed afloat despite every industry hurdle that's come his way. And it would be a shame for stores like that, these mom and pop stores, to close. And so our goal, actually, we, we have several battles that Mark and I have to face on a constant basis. You have, these, you have the leftists, obviously, because they don't like our Trump books. You have these guys on the right who are basically leftists, and they don't like our Trump books <laughs> either, and that's fine. But we also have this other hurdle where we're also trying to help out uh, the little guys and help these stores stay afloat. And I don't, don't get me wrong, I'm, I don't think that we're making like a huge impact, but I think every little bit helps. And if we can just pay uh, the rent or the utilities <laughs> of some store in America for one well, month, It's because a lot fine. of the, the big two comics, Marvel and DC, they're making books for nobody, so they're making books that nobody buys. They're making books that are like garlic to a vampire, they're a kryptonite to Superman, that it drives people away from comic shops instead of to them. We want to make books that attract people to comic shops, that make you want to go and subscribe to that book and pick it up every month or pick it up when it's available, when it comes out to look forward to. And while you're at the shop to look at some of the other books that you didn't know were there that uh, make you realize, oh, I didn't know these kinds of comics were out. And there's not enough of that coming from the uh, the big... Fisher Kings of the industry, you know, the Marvels and DCs. And so we kind of have to try and pick up the slack. And a lot of indie creators are trying to pick up the slack. But between our Indiegogos and our retail editions, like Tim said, the Indiegogo editions, the success of them dictates whether a retail edition is put out for the comic shops. So how we try to reward our original backers, our original supporters who made our Indiegogos a success is that we add extra content to the Indiegogo. It's a special edition. So you'll get a backup story, you'll get concept art, you'll get character profiles, you'll get uh, better paper stock, and you'll get a like a nicer cover or an alternate cover exclusive to that version as a way of just thanking you for backing our book um, from the gate, from the, from the start, and proving to the publishers that it, people want it and it goes out in retail. So that's why you might want to pick up the Indiegogo version instead of waiting for retail because you're going to get more out of it. Yeah, and there's within the next few hours that we're going to be on the show, we'll be talking to a few independent creators, some who are mainstream legendary creators who are working independently, and we're going to list a couple of things that we have to say about some of the books that are, are up there right now on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. 
we have a lot of friends who work in the industry. So we have, like, for example, the Needle Mover Society. Those are good guys. They got Legends of the Lone Wolf, which is up at Kickstarter right now. We have our friends who run um, SWC Revived, well, kind of a salty channel, but they have really funny commentary. They used to basically do commentary on web comics, but they actually have a book right now called Literally that you can actually buy on Comixology for, I think, a dollar. I mean, it's a really good comic. It kind of has like a Calvin and Hobbes feel. They have a campaign called um, Inevitably Doomed that's out currently. Our friend John De La Rose deleting Hispanic voice in science fiction. <laughs> he has a book right now on Kickstarter called Flying Sparks, and it's on volume three, I believe. Yep. And you can buy the previous volumes uh, through uh, an add-on on his site. So you can get caught up with his books as well. So it's a really exciting time for independent comics. If you can't find something in the mainstream that you like, you can always dip into independence for an alternative. And I think it's funny, considering that Mark and I growing up, well, I can only speak for myself, um, but I was never big into independent books. I only read big two, Marvel, DC, a little bit of Ninja Turtles, I didn't but that's pretty much it. So when I was a kid, like a little kid, I didn't have a choice because we didn't have a comic shop in my city. So it was the newsstand or nothing, and the newsstand only stocked uh, you know, Marvel and DC books. I didn't get into um, to indie books until I was a teenager in a comic shop. I found it when I was old enough to drive to the comic shop that was really far away. Um, then I discovered independent books, and I started reading um, more uh, exciting things and finding out there's more to comics than superheroes and um, Jughead. Yeah, um, same thing here. And a lot of it boils down to this. So a lot of the comics recently in Marvel and DC, a lot of people might only know those two companies based on the movies that have come out recently. Now, the movies are are fairly friendly to all audiences. They were definitely made for general audiences. You don't have to have read comics to enjoy them. But the reality is that in the mainstream comics, particularly in Marvel, there is definitely like a very left-leaning agenda that's happening. And it's really shown not only in the quality of the writing, but also in the quality of the art. Because sometimes what would happen is you would have this artist that they're brought that they bring in, not because their their style is good, but because they just know the right people. And by mm-hmm. know the right people, I mean that they have the same political affiliations. And so you had this this sort of a gradual decline in terms of um who uh, who was being featured and who not. So we found ourselves looking more at independence as a source of our entertainment um, as far as like the, the industry well, is one concerned. One of the reasons the independents have, have been so good lately is because all of the merit-based talent that used to be at Marvel and DC were driven out uh, by the, the left-leaning individuals who wanted a hive mind of uh, yes-men and were hiring people based on political affiliations, not whether they were good or not. So good writers like Chuck Dixon and artists like Graham Nolan, they're in the independence now. So joining us right now, I promise that we would have a special guest. I don't know how long he can stay with us. I said he only has to be with us for about five minutes, but I'm really excited. So I think he's on the line right now. We have the Chinaman himself, Kid Walk, Mark Britton. Yeah. Can you smell what the walk is cooking? Uh, you know, I'm surprised that you said Chinaman. It's China Man. You know that. It's a superhero. The China Man. Yeah. You have to have the hyphen in the middle. How's it going, man? <laughs> um, uh, hang on. Is this an Asian dude telling another Asian dude how to do his English? <laughs> his English with an R. His English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's spelled with an R. <laughs> so for people listening out there, if you're from the central, central Little Rock area, you might know Mark Britton. This guy's the man. So... He's a comedian, and he's a voice actor. And back, you know, when I was in my post-college days, I would go to the Looney Bin Comedy Club, and the one act I never missed was when Mark was in town because 
this is the man with I've never I've never encountered someone who can do so many vocal impersonations. And so here's the funny story. So I'll have to tell this story later on whenever we yeah. do our YouTube thing. But my company is called Ninja Inc. And the weirdest thing was I named it based on a routine that Mark Britton would do. Every time he came into town, he would say, where are my ninjas at? And obviously, I was the only Asian person in the room. So I would be like, I'm your ninja. And so I just thought it was hysterical that for like two years, this, this shtick would be going on. So I just think it's interesting that we were able to, to kind of reconnect after all this time. We never knew each other personally, but we had a mutual friend. And uh, I, I just think fate kind of put us together. And I'm very happy to have the chance to talk to you. Uh, I, I, I feel uh, very humbled that I have been an influence and inspiration to anything that you've been doing. I mean, that that is, uh, uh, I've just been able to make the connections now that I inspire quite a bit of people, my wife tells me. Uh, I think, I tell my wife a lot of the times, I think I'm about uh, two vaccines away from being autistic. So sometimes <laughs> I don't connect the dots, you know, like other people would normally connect the dots. Well, <laughs> so I've just begun to realize that, yes, I have inspired a lot of people, and it is fun to see, go back and see these little connections. So you don't know. You know, here I am from Texas, and you're in Arkansas, and I say, any, any, any of my ninjas, where's my Asian people? Any of my ninjas in the crowd, what up, my ninja? There's my ninja. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and for you to be the only ninja that has only almost been there every year that I've been there <clears throat> since you saw me, <clears throat> I mean, that's – that's quite cool, and and it, and and it tells you that, that there's not many there's not many Asian people in the neighborhood. Is there <laughs> many people in Arkansas? There actually there are. There's a lot of Vietnamese up in Fort Smith, and in Texas, I've actually met more Asians. Like for example, Johnny Wong, uh, he actually has this. Hit. Next time you're in the area, if you're ever in the Temple area, come to Dynasty Chinese Restaurant. His family owns it. His dad is like an Iron Chef, so he has a great spread when it comes to the Chinese food that they serve. So, I mean, like Texas, especially like the Austin area, uh, you do have a lot more um, Asians there. And in central Arkansas, I think it's growing. Um, that's for sure. But, I mean, for the longest time, as far as comedy that clubs are so concerned. It's so funny to me that you said that about Johnny. Is it Wong? Is that right? Am I saying it Wong? It's Wong. You're saying, saying it, right? you're saying it Wong, but you're saying it right. <laughs> But hang on, but if I say it wrong, am I still saying it right? Yes, you are. So, <laughs> if you're saying it wrong, then you're saying it right. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what his, that's what his motto should be. Anyways, he didn't tell me that his family, uh, which Johnny Wong, for those of us who, who don't know out there, right, is actually one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that toured with Vanilla Ice in the I Love 90s uh, tour just recently as well but uh he didn't tell me i took him out places here in colorado springs and i took him to a chinese buffet telling him it was a great buffet never once did he mention that his dad was the iron chef you know type of type of guy who owns a restaurant <laughs> he's I, really humble I feel, I feel real stupid now <laughs> I feel like hey this is some good food huh and he's probably thinking no uh-uh, they didn't do this right they didn't do that right <laughs> he is he is He's one of the most humble friends I have. Whenever we, we do conventions together and he advertises Bell County Comic Con, he actually never says he's the owner of it. He just acts like a normal person. And I think it's because he stays humble, and that's really good. But I wanted to ask you, Mark, yeah. so for, for people listening uh, and tuning in just now, so we have Mark Brent on the line. You might know him as the voice actor for the original Dragon Ball Z characters, the Grand Kai, Oolong, and Bubbles the Monkey. Uh, tell everyone what you're doing right now. Okay. Uh, well, currently I'm still touring, doing stand-up as well as 
giving uh, voiceover seminars on how to get started in doing voiceovers from home, how I have my voiceover set up. Because a lot of my voiceovers, even for parts that uh, come in movies and people want me to take part in it if I'm doing a voiceover, I just voice it from home and ship it to him. So, I mean, it's almost a gig society that you could sustain a living off of, you know. Um, so that's kind of what I'm into doing. I'm, I'm going out and inspiring. Once I found out I'm inspiring people, this is, this is an addiction to inspire people. To, yeah. It's almost like having people carry on your work. Right. Well, they I can't carry on your name and, and mention great things about you. It, it's all a win-win, man. So you know, my, my co-host, I'm doing them. What's that? My co-host, Mark Pellegrini, is here, and I told him, I said, uh, hey, when you look this guy up, you might see all these vo- voices that he's done in the past, but his, the one that killed me last time I saw you was that Robert Stack impersonation. And so in that video I sent you, that's my, my friend Mark. He's the guy in the video with his face blurred out doing that thing. Oh, nice. but, but the thing that was really funny was um, we had a friend who asked, like, oh, my gosh, this guy, he's, like, spot on for Robert Stack. And I said, you should hear his Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I went on YouTube and I found a clip of you impersonating Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that clip has, like, 180,000 views on it. So, I mean, like, people definitely know who you are, and you've definitely had an impact on a lot of people because, I mean, well, just— Well, I didn't, I didn't market that, that one right. That one's, like, 10 years ago, even more, if not. You know what I mean? So, And we're back. We have a few minutes until the top of the hour. Actually, we'll probably have less, less than that. Zach is saying we have 30 seconds. So when <laughs> we come back, I think we have someone who's going to be calling in again. We have another guest, uh, and hopefully he got the memo, and he'll be calling in on time, but— it's been an exciting day. I think once we hit the 4 o'clock, we only have two more hours. Yeah, we've got a, a promo that Mark Britton, our previous guest, did for us that we're going to try and play if we have time. Yeah, we were able to pull it up, so yeah. hopefully we'll be able to have it you know, fired up and ready to go. But we've been having a lot of fun, so make sure you stick around and check us out. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. We are back. It is 4 o'clock, top of the hour. People are driving home. It is Friday. It's a good time to... To get out. I don't know how the weather is going to be like this weekend. You look it up, Mark? Um, it's not going to be nice, no. It's, it's not going to be nice. It's a good weekend to go to a convention like SpaCon. We'll be indoors the whole time. But yeah. you'll still be walking around and moving. Hopefully you're not going to be rained out when you're yeah. outside, though. So I am Dr. Timothy Lim filling in for the great Dave Ellswick today for the whole four hours. And here we are. We're at the halfway point. Joining me today is my trusted co-host, Mark Pellegrini. And with us as a switchboard operator and the engineer of everything good that happens on this uh, on this channel and this radio uh, program is Zach over in the other room. And man, we've had a, a busy day so far. We've had a couple of really cool people call in. We had Mark mm-hmm. Britton. We had Doug Tenaple. Uh, it's been really good. So how you feeling, dude? I feel like Zach is the Kristoff to our <laughs> Truman show. <laughs> Zach is high energy because <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, I remember last time I did this, I think Russ was our operator and I was exhausted after all of this was done. And so for him to be able to juggle everything back there and basically be the, the command center or the nerve unit for all of this going on is really something. So it's really great to have Zach over there, too. And he's like us. We talk about some nerd stuff also. So it's nice to have a third person that we can play off of. It's been really cool. We have um, we I think that my friend Preston is going to be calling in in a few minutes. Uh, it'll just be based on his schedule. I don't know how much of a, of a hard time it was that. Uh, I gave him, so I think he's going to play kind of loosey-goosey with it. But in the meantime, um, I guess one thing that we can talk about is this. So during the break, I got a text message from um, our friend George Alexopoulos, who we had on the show last night. He actually just got out of Rambo. 
Oh, yeah, we talked about Rambo for a good <clears throat> while last night. He didn't like it. Ah, uh, well, he he said as much that he didn't like any of the Rambo sequels. So yeah, he liked he that. liked First Blood. Yeah, he liked First Blood, but because none of the Rambo other Rambo movies are like First Blood, because they're all very much hardcore action, where First Blood was more introspective and dramatic. I'm not surprised he doesn't like the sequel either. <laughs> yeah, I think he, um, I think he, like for example, we talked about this last night. How I'm more of a when it comes to the visual entertainment of movies or television, I'm more of a am I entertained type of person. Yeah. Whereas I think people like uh, like George are more cerebral. And he kind of likes the story of, like, the underdog rising mm-hmm. up. And once you get to the point where you're just basically a muscle-bound hero yeah. kind of blowing people up, then it's, it's no longer fun. Whereas I like that type of stuff, honestly. I mean, I can, I can like both, though, with Rambo. Is that the, first, the original First Blood is the best movie probably in the series. It's very different from the rest of them, but it has far more content and, and far more cerebral aspects to it. But Rambo 2 and 3 are still good, and they're still a fun watch. Um, it's kind of like A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 is a far more interesting horror movie with a much better narrative and much better atmosphere and obviously much better directing. But the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels are still a lot of fun to watch, even when you get to Freddy's Dead. They're goofy and they're totally different kinds of movies, but they're still entertaining. So even if it's in the same franchise, um, as long as it's entertaining you in one way or another, even if it's a different kind of way, it's still a good movie. I, know, I like Rambo 2 and 3. Those are the guilty pleasures of mine. I think the, the one thing that we had a consensus on last night was that Rambo, John Rambo, Rambo 4, whatever you want to yeah. call it, that was arguably like the weakest link. Yeah, that one, its biggest problem is that I just thought it was boring. <clears throat> it was the type of movie that it couldn't decide on what it wanted to be. Did it want to be kind of the, the somber narrative of First Blood, or did it want to be the action-packed spectacle of its It of tried its to be both, and it couldn't do it was the problem. So, it, so the, if you watch the original First Blood, it does have a lot of action in it, and it does have a lot of drama. It's just paced very well. You get a dramatic scene and then an action scene, dramatic scene, action scene. So it keeps you going through the whole movie. Uh, the John Rambo movie, Rambo 4, was front-loaded with all the drama and then back-loaded with all the action. And so getting there is just a pain. <laughs> I, forgot, I didn't tell you my experience of going into the theater and watching Rambo 4. So, yes, you had this plot of the missionaries. I think they were in Burma. Mm-hmm. And then they get kidnapped and obviously Rambo has to come in and save them. And then, so you get to this big action scene in the forest, and I'm thinking to myself, yes, here we go. We're going to get some action. And then the movie ends. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so backloaded with all of the action. That I yeah. just thought, wait, what? Like, this was all the stuff I saw in the trailer. Um, just kind of shoehorned at the, at the last minute. And a lot of the effects are digital, too. Like, what, there's so many headshots in the movie, but the headshots are all obviously very digital blood. And, like, the explosions, like, he drops, like, a really big bomb in the forest at one point, And it's a very obvious fake explosion, a digital one. Whereas when you go back and you watch even Rambo 3, which used to be the bad Rambo movie, all of the helicopters and tanks and jeeps are real. That scene where he's on horseback and he's facing down you know, the Russians on their tanks and you see that huge like Apache helicopter like swoop in behind them. It's a real helicopter that they had to get for that shot in camera. And it's impressive. But when you're watching John Rambo, Rambo 4... Just it's all cartoons, it's all CG animation. It's just not not as moving. <laughs> so another movie that a friend of mine is recommending is Angel Has Fallen. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? I heard heard of the title. <clears throat> it's about Los Angeles getting no, no? <laughs> nowhere close. So it's in the Has Fallen series. Oh, like Olympi- Olympus Has Fallen, and okay, yeah. So it's the third movie, Olympus Has Fallen, and then you had um, London Has Fallen, mm-hmm. and then now is Angel Has Fallen. And honestly. I feel bad because I didn't realize the movie had already been out for like three weeks. But Olympus Has Fallen had to deal with a White House like under siege, mm-hmm. kind of like 
Home Alone in the White House yeah. or Die Hard in the White I, House. I like that one. It was awesome. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure of mine. I like that movie. I like London Has Fallen. London Has Fallen has to do a terrorist attack in London. And obviously, uh, Mike Banning and the president happen to be there when it mm-hmm. happens. And so he gets to help them fight them. Apparently, Angel Has Fallen has to do with like an, atta- a, uh, an another attack, not on the White House, but on the president. <clears throat> but my buddy told me that I need to watch it because apparently it's kind of a ballsy move for Hollywood to make. Because one of the things that they talk about is it basically plays up on the whole Russian collusion thing. Like making, yeah. basically making fun of it and how it's oh, ridiculous. Okay. Now, obviously, he didn't spoil the plot for me yeah. because it's not something you know something I need to see on my own. But he says yeah. that's a great action movie. So who knows if you watch if you watch Rambo this weekend and you're not happy with it, you do have an alternative that's yeah. still in theaters with Angel Has Fallen as yeah. well. What do you think of those movies, Mark? I mean, I've only seen Olympus Has Fallen, <clears throat> and I like that one. I liked it a lot. But there was another movie that was almost identical that uh, Roland Emmerich came out with that same year. It was year. horrible. Yeah, which one was that one called? White House Down. White House Down, yes. I remember you telling me that that was lousy. But Roland Emmerich is one of those directors where I liked his movies as a kid, like Independence Day. But then I went back and I tried to watch him as an adult, and I find them annoying. And uh, I find them very vapid. You know, I just said that I liked Rambo 3, but even Rambo 3 isn't as vapid as a lot of Roland Emmerich movies. <laughs> well, that for so one of the things about the Roland Emmerich movie White House Down is it actually came out within like a few months of Olympus Has Fallen. And I think part of the reason why it didn't do I mean, when you have Channing Tatum and um Jamie Foxx, oh, no. it's the idea that you can't it, there's so much levity already built into yeah. the movie that is already there just by the casting alone. And so when I was watching it, I think one glaring thing <clears throat> about the movie was that the bad guys were basically like white nationalists taking yeah. over the Capitol and, and the White House. And I thought to myself, there is a point where you have this, not uncanny valley, but suspension of disbelief, where the audience is like, this is fake. Because in, in Olympus Has Fallen, the bad guys are the Koreans. They're North Koreans. Actual enemies of the country. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I think at that time, in, in where we were when that movie came out, arguably the terrorists would probably be more realistically going to be like um, Al-Qaeda or uh, or some Muslim extremist group, yeah, right? Yeah. But North Korea is a good alternative. But we, I mean, North Korea were one of the villains in uh, GI Joe Retaliation. They were in that like summit of other like ta- terrorists that Cobra got together when they had that like space weapon. But I mean, we're at kind of like a, a stalemate right now with North Korea, and things between the U.S. and North Korea are better than they've been in a long time. So it might be easy to forget that just as recently as about five years ago when that movie came out, uh, we weren't on good terms with them at all. And so that to have them as the villains in the movie was at the at the current events at the time it was it was very organic. Uh, now it's well Rambo three um, had the, the Taliban as the heroes helping Rambo um, take down uh, the evil Russians, and then uh, even has like a uh, has a message at the at the end of the movie before the credits, you know, uh, pledging you know honor to the, to the Taliban or the rebels of Afghanistan. I think they changed it for the home video version. Yeah, I was wondering and, if there was a change. To yeah, it. so the theatrical version called them that. The uh, the home video version changed it to the the rebels of Afghanistan. But obviously that didn't age very well, did it? Um, but yeah, still a great movie. It's still a great movie. Uh, but the same thing with like Olympus Has Fallen. You know, maybe you're like, oh, North Koreans as the bad guys. That's ridiculous. We're better friends with them now than we've ever been in the past. You know, like, yeah, but we weren't friends with them five years ago. <laughs> well, it's it's still interesting to see it as kind of um, a touchstone moment in entertainment history. Because, for example, you have Red Dawn, right? Yeah. And Red Dawn happened during, uh, I think, the tail end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. 
And even to this day, I think you can still go back and watch the movie and appreciate it because mm-hmm. from a historical context, is like, well, that's what people thought <laughs> yeah. in terms of who, what was going to happen and the bad guys coming in. Red Dawn, the remake, they actually did North Koreans. So it was actually North Koreans and So they're just our stand-ins to... for Russians now. They we are, were... yeah. We need evil communists, so we just grab whoever's left, yeah. Yeah, get get the North Koreans to come in because, uh, you we know, We can't have Venezuelan terrorists because... <laughs> I know, so, I mean, like, London has fallen. They got, I think they actually got, what, nondescript people of Middle Eastern descent as being the <laughs> They wouldn't the bad call guys. them Al-Qaeda, but, yeah. Right. And so, um, I don't know, I'm curious to see what Angel has fallen... Is doing. Um, I might actually have to go and watch both movies because mm. I love that franchise. It's so it's so entertaining and so good. And I think it's it's still Morgan Freeman and uh, and Aaron um, Eckhart in it. So I think that it should be entertaining. I think we have a guest who's calling in. I know that one of our one of our guests was to be calling in 15 minutes ago, but we'll have to check and see. <clears throat> um, we have a few independent. Uh, authors and creators who are calling into the show today, including Chuck Dixon, in about uh, in about forty five minutes, which is really cool. Zach, is that is that our guest? Awesome. Okay, let's put him on. So we are here, uh, Mark Pellegrini and I. We are talking to a slew of wonderful people. But I am going to switch gears here for a minute because we're going to focus on the indie scene, and I want to talk to this gentleman who I've gotten to know over the last month. And he is Preston Poulter. He is the owner, founder of Pocket Jacks Comics. He has two books, one of which has already gone out, and the second one, which is currently funding, it's almost over. But we have Preston Poulter on the line with us. Preston, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Wonderful, wonderful. Tell us where we are with White Lily right now as far as the campaign is concerned. Okay, so we just finished the Indiegogo for White Lily issue three. Which, you know, there's kind of a Coke and Pepsi dichotomy between Indiegogo and Kickstarter. I'll, I'll, I take my books and I'll put them on each one, but Kickstarter performs way better for me. But uh, we just wrapped up Indiegogo for three, and I'm about to launch the Kickstarter for issue four as soon as we get the variant cover finalized. It'll probably be in a couple of weeks. So okay. That's where we are on that. Well, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you. I mean, not only of the work that you've done, but also in terms of the the Kickstarter Indiegogo difference that I think some of the listeners who tune in on Fridays to hear um, the pop culture talk will want to know in case they're interested in funding their own campaigns or running them on their own. But can you tell the audience real quick a little bit more about yourself, your background, and, the two, and a real quick synopsis of the two books that uh, you've, you've done so far? Um, sure. So, so I got two titles. The first one is a story that I just really fell in love with. Historical, pretty close to her life, but it would come into the category of historical fiction. It's about the deadliest female fighter pilot who ever lived. Her name was Lydia Litviak, and she flew for the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And the second title I made, because not everybody wants a war story, is called Guinevere and the Divinity Factory. And it's about a woman who can do magic. It can, she's, she's an apprentice wizard. You know, it's kind of visiting Harry Potter a little bit and that she starts off with just the ability to cast just a few spells and she's seeking to get better. So it, it combines some elements from, you know, the Doctor Strange, Harry Potter universe of people doing magic. But I really wanted to go with more of an American flavor. So instead of the stuffy British boarding school, it's instead kind of like the Gatsby Mansion where there's this big decadent party going on. And she has to, you know, people are doing magic in various rooms and she finally has to find the master wizard and ask him politely for admission. So that's 
those are the rough run rundown of those two titles. Well, and between both books, you successfully funded both, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we just, like I said, finished White Lily three, and we're about to do four. And Guinevere has gone through one, and then I hope to do number two on that one by the end of the year. So we've done four separate comic book campaigns, and then by January, I hope to have done six. Okay, cool. You know, it's interesting because the fact that you ran two campaigns, and you're in the same boat as Mark Pellegrini and I, as well as some of our other compatriots, in that we've never done this before. This is our first go-around. I mean, barely less than two years of doing this. And now, to be honest, I think part of our fan base is the fact that we capitalize on the Trump movement. So we got a lot of people from the MAGA base to kind of take a look at us. But when you're out there and you're creating uh, books out of whole cloth, uh, things that are of your own imagination and things that you have decided to, to kind of fund on your own, the fact that you were able to do two and do them successfully, that's good. So at, after the break, I really want to ask you some in-depth questions regarding like how, what you did with your marketing, what you did in terms of establishing a fan base and getting backers to come in and take a look at your product. So if you don't mind staying with us for about another 15 to 20 or 20 minutes, we'd love to you know keep you on the show and uh, talk sure. a little bit more in depth. But we're going to come up on a, on a short break right now. So we're going to take about a three-minute break, come back, talk a little bit more, take a hard break, and then come back and have your undivided attention for about 15 minutes. Okay, okay? Sure. All right, here we go. Let's go to a break. This is Timothy Lim filling in for Dave Ellswick, and with me is my co-host, Mark Pellegrini. On the line right now, we have comics creator, owner of Pocket Jacks Comics, uh, Preston Poulter. And when we, left, le- when we last left off, we were talking about your track record for funding uh, two books in such a short period of time and being very successful at it. We're going to go more in-depth with this after the hard break here in a few minutes. But can you r- really quickly kind of uh, tell us, give us an overview in terms of what you decided to do starting out with Guinevere and the Divinity Factory to make sure that when you launch this thing on Kickstarter that you would more than likely make your goal? Well, I started with a really good book. So I, I paid for, and I did something different with Guinevere that I decided to kind of embrace, and that's that I went with a great art team the whole way through. A lot of indie creators will just spring for a really good art team on the cover, and then they'll switch and go with, a not quite so good team on the interiors, but I, I had one art team do the whole book and it's a beautiful looking book. If you've gotten a chance to take a look at it. And I really embraced a lot of splash pages and two page spreads out of 23 interior pages. I went four splash pages and two, two page spreads or no, then one, two page spread. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a big art book essentially. And that allowed me to take interior pages and monetize them as prints and, what trading cards and, and stuff like that. And so that had a lot of eye candy for me to throw around the campaign and, you know, the, the, the page. So that when you clicked on the campaign page, you got to see all this gorgeous art, which I think helped convert people. And I remember I, I would go on some shows and, you know, like there was this one show I went on and the, the guy didn't even know me. I was just, uh, he was live streaming and I was over in his comments and I said, Hey, I've got this campaign. And he went and looked at the page real quick, and he, he brought me on his best stream because of the quality of the images. He's like, this looks great. So. <laughs> yeah, no, the yeah. art speaks for itself. And that's one thing that Mark and I had decided to do uh, fairly early on, which is make sure that the book is finished completely before we launch any campaign, or at least I would say 99% there. That's actually a piece right. of advice I give everyone, but you and I are in kind of unique positions. I know that 
you have made a very good um you you've been, done very well for yourself in terms of your finances and Mark and I watch our finances very closely. He he works in the business building. Uh, I and my wife work in medicine. And so a lot of things that we do, we have the capital to invest on the front end. But I always tell people, <clears throat> if you're trying to make a book, you should at least save some money so that you can pay for really good art um, because that's what's going to end up selling. And I don't know if that's true for – because one, thing, one of the things we're going to talk about after the break is talk about the Kickstarter Indiegogo difference and I think on I think on Kickstarter that's a hundred and fifty percent true. The Kickstarter fan base is, um, you know, devoted comic book fans. They're looking at that community. They're looking at what the new hotness is, and they probably saw Guinevere in the Divinity Factory. They saw that you had all of your your you that you had your act together, and they went for it. And I think that that's a huge selling point, regardless of whether or not your book was completed. They could already see that you put the legwork into the into it in the front end. Yeah. And, you know, I also, when, when I went to do the campaign, the book was already done. And, you know, these are things that I can do because I have the money to do them. So, but, you know, other people, you know, the, the typical dream is that you just go out there with an idea. And, you know, here's my idea for a comic book. And people go, okay, great. And they give you the money. And then, you know, you, you hire your artist or whatever. And then a year later, you get your book done and ready. But I think that story has gotten kind of tired uh, like people are not as receptive to it as maybe they otherwise might be. And no. No, there have been a number of stories where, lo and behold, you give money to someone who's never done it before, and they don't actually turn out a product. Right. You know. And so people are kind of leery. But when I'm able to come in and go, look, this book's already done. You know, I just have to finalize the thank you page, which has to wait on the campaign to be finished. They're hard to send it to the printer, and I've already built up a track record for it. But you know, that kind of stuff encourages people to back the campaigns. And I, I look at it kind of as, as repeat customers that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Kickstarter and Indiegogo as basically eBay. Like I've uh-huh. already created the item. I'm just putting it out there. Here, here's my listing. And I drive people to it. You know, people sign up at comic book shows and whatnot to be on my email list. I'll drive people to it using email lists or I'll go on, you know, YouTube or other people's live streams or whatnot and go, okay, here's the campaign we got going on. And you try and drive people to it. But, other than that, it, it's just a sales channel. Like, right. And I know, you know a name I will not mention, uh, a, a very prominent YouTuber said that, well, he was. they were getting a lot of critiques because they were very, very late on their campaign. And they said in a right. recent public live stream, they were like, well, you do know that the terms of service of crowdfunding means that there doesn't have to be a product that actually has to go out. You should just be lucky that, you know, it's something that I'm I'm doing. And if you want refunds, well, I don't have to give you a refund. It's it's just something that I'm doing because I'm benevolent. And that's true. Right. But it, it's the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. The letter of the law is, yes, you have, you're entitled to do that. But the reality is that what the onus of responsibility on professionalism is the creator and the creator taking the responsibility to uphold those, uh, those tenets just because they have to. Preston, if you will, stick with us. We'll be right back after this break. Okay, sure. Welcome back. This is Dr. Timothy Lim, and I'm joined in the studio with Mark Pellegrini and Zach over at the Switchboard. On uh, on the line with us right now is uh, Preston Poulter with Pocket Jacks Comics. We've been talking for the last few minutes about crowdfunding and his successful two campaigns, one of which just wrapped up, White Lily. Uh, Preston, a big question I mm-hmm. want to ask you is something that um, I think our mutual friend John De La Rose and I have talked about, which is he made the transition from Indiegogo to Kickstarter, and his first campaign 
was a little bit rough, and I knew going on going in, and I told him this that it was going to be rough because it's a different crowd, and this migration right. from one platform to the other might not occur. Now, personally, I find it strange because I've backed things on both platforms, and I don't see it as being a big deal having to actually go from one platform to the other. I see a book on Kickstarter, <laughs> fine, let me go and pledge to it. But apparently that's a big hang-up for some people. So in your experience, because John is loving it right now, because his first campaign, he uh, he made the money he needed to, which was good, not quite what he wanted, but now he's over the moon over the second campaign because he didn't even have to really try. Within one day, he got the funding. In terms of right. comparing Kickstarter and Indiegogo, what, for our listeners out there, what things do you have to say about comparing the two? Which ones do you prefer? What are some pros and cons when you're comparing both of them if you're a comics creator trying to get your book out there? Uh, so Indiegogo has some things. It has some things I like. Uh, if you, you know, like 10 years ago, <laughs> if you had some kind of product or service, which let's face it, you know, we do, we have comic books design so you know, it would be okay, we have to sit down and design a website with some kind of e-commerce backend to, you know, get people to, so you can send people to your website for them to buy your book. On Indiegogo, you can go do a campaign, and then after the campaign's over, you can go into in-demand, and it can basically serve that function for you. So you just send people to your Indiegogo campaign, and then you know they, the payment processing is all taken care of, and that can just stay there for however long you want. Like if you go look at my Gwenary and the Manufacturer on Indiegogo, you can still pledge and, and get the book because of in-demand. So it kind of takes the place of the e-commerce platform. And, you know, it, it's fairly simple and easy to use. And the other thing that I do like, that I wish Kickstarter would do, is when you pledge on Indiegogo, it deducts the money from their account immediately. Whereas on Kickstarter, and all the decisions, all your buying decisions are made at the time you pledge. On Kickstarter, it's not. On Kickstarter, they pledge. Then if the goal hits its money, then there's like this collection period where Kickstarter will be like charging all the cards and some people will have outdated card information. And so you, you, there's kind of a lag there for a couple of weeks. And Kickstarter doesn't have that ability to have a store that you can send people to. So, are you planning yeah. on, on future projects, are you planning a, a kind of a hybrid model where you start on Kickstarter and then ma migrate to Indiegogo because you know that you can use it as a means of selling, um, let's say, overhead or stock? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Uh, you know, they're, they're just different platforms. Now, the, the the great thing about Kickstarter is it has seven times the user base, and they have really good search functions. So on Indiegogo, if you don't get make a big enough splash early to get on trending, then you're just going to get buried, and you're going to have to entirely drive your own traffic. Whereas Kickstarter, there have been some small campaigns I've done for like Make 100 where I had a sketch cover version of the comic book and like when we're in the Divinity Factory, after I... Welcome back. It is the 5 o'clock hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Again, this is Dr. Timothy Lim filling in for Dave Ellswick. With me in the studio are Zach, our switchboard operator, and Mark Pellegrini, my co-host. Uh, it's been a fun day. Here we are, three hours down, one more to go. We've made it happen. This is only our second time doing this, but mm -hmm. I'm feeling pretty good. We've had a, a lot of really good um, people calling in, but we've saved... A creme de la creme for our, our final call for today. Um, we were talking about Rambo here in the studio when we first started the broadcast. Now, I don't have Sly on the line, but I have the next best thing to him. So joining us on the line is legendary creator, writer, 
and producer Chuck Dixon. Chuck, how are you doing today? Pretty good. I feel like I should say yo. You know, say it, yo. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. So Chuck and I go back a year. I mean, I've, I've, I've followed his work. Uh, I, I don't think he minds me saying this, but he's a fellow conservative. And so we've always bonded based on that. My first exposure to him as far as like hearing him was actually when um, I think you were talking to Milo Yiannopoulos a few years ago. This was back in like 2016, 2017. And since then, he and I collaborated. Chuck Dixon is the writer for Trump Space Force. Um, I drew it. Mark Pellegrini here in the studio did a little bit of script punch-ups with a little bit of humor and stuff like that. But man, oh man, you've been staying busy, Chuck, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in a good spot right now. I'm in demand. People are calling me asking me to work for them. I've actually had to say no a couple of times recently. Oh, that's, now, that's a good sign when it's not just that you're busy, but you're so busy that you actually have to turn people down and break some hearts. I know that actually happened. I don't want to put you on the spot, but it actually happened not too long ago when I told the people who run um, a comic convention here in Arkansas, Comic Conway, I was like, I might be able to get you Dave Dorman, Graham Nolan, and Chuck Dixon. So we got two out of three, but I know that you were busy and your, your schedule wouldn't permit that third appearance. But hopefully maybe they'll get you soon in the future. Yeah, I'm a tough get for cons. I don't, I don't leave Florida a lot, but yeah, maybe someday. Well, I don't blame you. It's Florida. Actually, we're yeah. going to be in your neck of the woods here in a few weeks. So we're actually going down to Orlando in about three weeks for our annual oh, vacation. Excellent. Yeah, hopefully all, all the bad weather will have passed us by that time. <laughs> but I'm guessing you're holding up okay down where you're at. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, it, it dodged us. We were on the Gulf side, so we got away with a little bit of rain. Now, if, without revealing too much of you know, your personal information, uh, around what area of Florida are you at? You said the Gulf side, but you know the Gulf side's pretty huge. Are you like near the Tampa area, Clearwater? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the Tampa Bay area. Okay, so believe it or not, this is something that I'm super pumped. Mark is looking at me with derision right now because I'm so stoked to do this. But we're going to go to Crystal, Crystal River uh, when we're down there because oh, I've, cool. I've always wanted to swim with the manatees. So <laughs> we haven't booked our tours yet, but I am so pumped. To do that. It's been his dream since childhood to, to swim with the giant sea hogs. It, it's been my dream since childhood, which was like two years ago. But I'm a child at heart, so that's how that works. Have you ever done it, Chuck? No, I have not. I've seen them because uh, they gather around the, uh, the the spillway from the electric plant because the water is so warm. <laughs> and because they're stupid. Uh, so you can see them. Better. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm, I'm excited because apparently that's something that can actually be done, not year-round, but it's done – during the winter season um so that's unusual most people equate the better weather with you know the most conducive atmosphere for seeing those things but they come down because it's the waters are warm constantly so that's their migration pattern so we're really excited about that but we're here to talk comics so i know that the last time we had you on you were um with um you had just announced to us actually that you were in development with the levon property with uh, sly's production studio so dave ellswick told me he said if you can get chuck on try and get as much information out of it as you can so what can you tell our listeners about what's going on with you and sylvester stallone well nothing nothing's going on in the levon thing right now or it's going slow in these production things and pre-production it's always very slow and then it moves very quickly so we're in the we're in the slow part but but sly and i are actually working on a comic book project together which i can't really talk about much but uh, he approached me and said he wanted to do something in comics, and he had a, this crazy idea for a graphic novel, and we're doing it. Uh, um, 
We've already got, I've already seen pages of art. It looks stunning. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't want to shoehorn myself into here, but you can tell Sylvester Stallone, if you need anything, I will work for free. Let me draw like, <laughs> let me draw like a tiny doodle in the back or whatever, just so I can say I've done some work for him. That is incredible. Well, I know you can't reveal much, but what's the general tone? Is it going to be, is it going to be like a romantic, uh, <laughs> A romantic time period, timepiece, like you know, we oh, Victorian with? England, like Jane Eyre, yeah, Victorian steampunk. Like, what's the yeah, general it, feel of the book? It's it's Bridges of Madison County too, uh, so. with with M fifty or uh, like yeah, yeah. AR fifteens and stuff. We thought it was time. It was time. Yeah. Is a is Sly standing behind you right now, stroking his hunting knife, like you signed the non disclosure agreement. <laughs> Well, it'll be revealed soon. I think October 1st. Is October 1st. Okay, so you've heard it here. This, I think this is the first. You heard it right mm-hmm. here on the Dave Ellswick Show, October 1st. Follow Chuck Dixon and Sylvester Stallone on social media. They have something big to announce come October the 1st. If you don't mind, Chuck, we actually have a listener calling in. He wants to ask you a question. Sure. Okay, let's put him on. Hello? Lewis, you're on, you're yeah, on right hey, now. How y'all doing? Doing well. How are you? Great. Listen, yeah, I got two quick questions. Uh, first of all, I was curious to know um, who the publisher is going to be on the comic. Is it going to be through Arcade? Then? Uh, no, it's not. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say who we're doing it through because he'll kill me. Uh, okay. But well, it's, don't it's do a that, small. Then. It's a. It's a. It's a press that's friendly to uh, my political views and, and slides as well. So. Okay. And well, then the second question, because I know you've done work with Arcade. I just got to know if it's true that Vox actually drinks from a golden skull. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, Chuck and I, Chuck does a lot more work with Vox than I do. I actually talked to him the other day, but I think he drinks from a silver skull. I think that's a, oh, oh, okay. My mistake. Chuck My is mistake. the one who drinks from the golden skull. Chuck drinks from the, the, the golden skull or the bronze one. It depends on the day. depends on how he's feeling. All right, thanks. No problem. Thank you very much, Lewis. So, man, oh my! You know, you're staying really busy. How are your projects going with Vox? Like I said, he called me the other day, out of the blue. He wanted to give me an update on uh, certain situations involving crowdfunding, and you know they were very good. And so he and I had a chance to talk. He normally calls me maybe once. Um, he normally calls me maybe once a month just to check up and see how things are going. But it looks like you guys are staying productive. I mean, like he's churning out book after book. Um, how's that been working out with you so far? It's it's good. In fact, he called me today to just basically go over the schedule because you know I'm staying well ahead of schedule. I'm staying well ahead of him too, which irks him. But uh, <laughs> but he just wanted to make sure that you know I knew where I stood on my schedule so I could stay well ahead of the artists, which I have. I'm I'm two to three months ahead of all of them, so it's not a problem. But yeah, and we and we're working on a a new project now, which I just wrote the first issue of today, and that's you know I'm going to wait and let him announce that. Well, so. I know because Mark here is a is a writer, and obviously it's going to take a while before he has the same pedigree that you do. But I was telling the story. It's actually, one of, it's actually one of my favorite stories to tell is that when when you pitched to us Trump Space Force and you had told us that you were going to have it to us soon, I was thinking like two weeks, three weeks. I think you had that script ready by three days, and I just thought, <laughs> no wonder Chuck has the record of being the most prolific writer. Like, holy cow. Like, uh, I mean – don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like you make it easy, but I think you obviously have have done it for so long that it's almost second nature. You can actually just sit down, and it's it's almost like a flawless effort. I mean, as an artist, I wish I could make it to that point. I'm not quite there yet, 
But uh, for you, obviously, I think I think Vox definitely had a great steal when he was able to get you to work on his projects. Well, he's he's an interesting guy to work for. You know, he knows when to challenge me and when to leave me alone. And uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the background. You know, uh, you know about subject matter and things like that. But you know, basically, he just lets me fly and trusts me uh, and has a lot of faith in me. And that's and that's all any creator needs from their publisher or their editor is, is faith. Well, Chuck, are there any titles that you've ever, like, just forgotten that you ever wrote for? Like, one day you, you open up your mail and you have a, a royalty check from Wildstorm for A Nightmare on Elm Street. And you're like, oh, yeah, I did write those, didn't I? <laughs> no, no, usually if I've forgotten it, they, they've forgotten to send me the royalty <laughs> So, what was that book, uh, Mark? I don't know if you mentioned it last time. Didn't you buy a book by Chuck Dixon where you had showed it to me? I think you found it at a comic convention, and you're like, "You should see who wrote this." And I was like, "Oh, Chuck wrote it." Was it the Winnie the Pooh? Uh, no, that was actually a story Chuck told you. Uh, you told us, Chuck, right? Um, last yeah. time we did a stream yeah. with you, that uh, one of your earliest uncredited uh, works was on a Winnie the Pooh storybook where you gave Winnie the Pooh uh, two handguns. No, I gave Tigger. I, I, Tigger. We, we did a flashback to Tigger's ancestor, Two Gun Tigger, who was a Western sheriff. And he fired six <laughs> guns that, that uh, were loaded with rubber bullets, of course. Oh, rubber <laughs> bullets. Okay. <laughs> I still can't believe I got that into a Disney word book. <laughs> you know, it's it's really funny because we, you know, we hang around a lot of independent creators. And I don't know if you catch the previous segments, but we were talking about kind of this uh, mentality where Mark and I don't come from the comics world. We're outsiders. So we're not, we don't consider ourselves pros. We don't consider ourselves part of the industry. We're kind of on the outside looking in. And I think one thing that we constantly tell people that people are shocked by <clears throat> is they ask, if you could work on any property, what would you work on? And we got to the point where we were like, you know, we're having so much fun kind of doing our own thing that – and we do it unrestricted that I, I don't even want to entertain that question because even if it was a character I liked, like Spider-Man, where it was like, you can draw Spider-Man. I was like, can I really? Without some editor telling me like, <laughs> hey, his, his, his leg w- looks wonky or hey, uh, his, his arm is off or oh, hey, this is off model. Don't put this into there. Have you reached this point in your career where you have kind of left behind the big two and don't even entertain the thought? Or is, are there still some times when you're like, you know, I really wish I got the opportunity to write this one character? No, I, you know, I kind of I, I did that. And now I'm doing like my own thing. I'm either doing creator owned or I'm doing stuff that people bring to me, you know, like 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 Fox and uh, Richard Meyer. And uh, I'm really enjoying that. I mean, there's a few characters I, I'd like to do more of. I don't, you know, I'll take any opportunity to write more Tarzan. Uh, I, I didn't feel like I wrote enough of that. Uh, but, oh, you should talk you know. to Michael Tierney here in uh, Little Rock. Oh, my because... gosh. We, we have a friend, yeah. Michael Tierney. He um, he runs the probably one of the only two comic shops in central Arkansas. But he works directly with the Burroughs estate. So, I mean, <laughs> I know that well, you have your own I'm, connections, I'm doing too. A, uh, I do a weekly strip for Burroughs people. Okay, so, okay, I've been so doing it for like six years. But, and, and I can have Tarzan in it whenever I want. I just don't want to overuse the guy. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's the Pellucidar series, which okay. you know, he, he was a part of. Uh, and I did, I did have him in there for a while, but uh, you know, like three or four years ago. But, um, but you know, it's just a character I like. And I, I enjoy writing. That's awesome. If you don't mind, Chuck, can you stay with us for another 15 minutes? We're going to take a soft break for about three minutes. And then when we come back, we can take you to the 530 mark, if that's fine with you. Sure. All right. Sounds wonderful. If you just stick around, listeners in the Central Arkansas area, this is Dr. Timothy Lim. I'm here with 
the wonderful, legendary Chuck Dixon, my co-host Mark Pellegrini, and Zach behind the studio. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Dr. Timothy Lim with Mark Pellegrini in the studio. On the line with us is Chuck Dixon. Chuck, we only have a few minutes before we have to wrap it up, but Mark had a question that he wanted to ask you, and it's one of those questions where uh, we feel like you're in the position to give very good advice. Uh, So, Chuck, um, I'm pretty new to writing comics. Um, I've published only about uh, eight or nine comics that I've written with Tim and with various other people, and... So my, my comics that I write with Tim is completely collaborative. We go back and forth, and we edit each other in real time. And so by the end of the uh, the project, by the time it's ready to get published, what I wrote is what Tim and or Bill letters. And so what I wrote is what hits the page because we agreed about it every step of the way. Now, other people who I have worked with have been more about um, who've owned the IPs, so they're not collaborative. I've worked, worked for hire for them. And they've... Uh, after I write my script, after collaborating with them and, and publish, sending them my final draft, I find out later that they've sent my, dra- my draft to a committee, and a committee is rewriting it, and I have no idea what's going to be in the book, or in the comic, and what it's going to look or read like when it goes out. It's just going to have my name on it. And so my question, Chuck, is someone who's been doing this for a long time and written thousands and thousands of pages and thousands and thousands of issues, how do you get over that? <laughs> Um, wow, that's um, see, that's a whole post-production process that, that exists in mainstream comics now that never existed when I worked at DC and Marvel. I mean, you did it pretty much what you wrote went on the page, you know, unless you wrote something crazy that they had to change. Like I, in in Moon Knight, one time I showed the kids how to make napalm. And <laughs> oh, no. my, my editor thought maybe that wasn't such a good idea, but um, but you know, for the most part, you know, ninety nine percent of what I wrote went on the page as I wrote it. Uh, but now they, they, you know, because of uh, everything being digital, they can, they can adjust art, they can adjust scripting, they can do everything. And it's insane uh, because the, the power of comics is it's raw. It's immediate. It's a, it's a guy writing and a guy drawing, you know, a guy or gal writing and drawing you know, on paper, you know, and just pictures and words. And it's supposed to be simple. But, but these, um, you know, these imbeciles have made it more difficult. <laughs> yeah, so I guess my, my question was, like, how do I... Because, uh, you know, obviously what they told me is, like, well, Mark, this is the way it's done, you know? Um, you just kind of have to check your ego. This is the process. And so I'm like, well, do I? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, for the writer in a comic, you're sort of piling up work behind you, you know? Yeah, so yeah. you just keep looking forward to that day when you have the creative control. You know, and with the smaller indies and with crowdfunding projects, you know, I mean, your work with Tim, I mean, you've got total creative control. You guys are in charge. You're driving the car. And you just have to do that. I mean, I did my share of work for hire. I did my share of creator-owned. I enjoyed both. But uh, my last stab with the, with the big two, I, I didn't really enjoy at all because of, of that process. I experienced a little mm-hmm. bit of that. Yeah, even a little bit becomes annoying when you're used to, like, full freedom. Even the smallest restraint ends up becoming almost like a millstone around your neck because you have no control over it. And that's what Mark and I were talking about because on his project, he, whenever he does a script and it's just the two of us, he's very particular, which means he notices every change that I make. And so basically, at the end of the day, the decision has to be made between the two of us. I don't have any veto power over him. He gets to decide if this is something that... I trust because I trust him as a writer that he knows what he's doing and he trusts me as the artist <clears throat> to know what I'm doing. And it's annoying when it's like, hey, I sent in this script and it was like 78 pages 
and this person I sent it to, they want to tack on an extra seven pages, and it's not me writing it, it's someone else, but I'm going to get the writing credit. It's kind of this dual feeling of kind of like, well, that's cool that I'm getting full credit, but it's also not because it's not my work. It's not something that I agreed to. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, I did a project recently, uh, and and there was sort of a committee involved because it, it it was a comic done for a personality, and they put their own writer on it, and and he kind of altered a lot of my dialogue. And all I said was, I want his name in the credits because I'm not taking sole credit for this. Right, this, and that's all. This, this that... dialogue is wretched. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's almost like the very fair way of doing it, and you know, that's something that that makes sense. So it should be like. Oh, pages X through Z, Mark Pellegrini, pages Y through something, Mr. Well, So-and-so. So, um, for Trump Space Force, Chuck, I don't think I ever really talked to you about it. I'm sorry if um, any of the dialogue punch-ups I did for Trump were wretched. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. That, no uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that project. Oh, it was yeah. another project. No, no. Uh, I was really stuff, nervous you know, about you were... that, just by yeah. the way, because I was like, oh, Tim's given me uh, um, Chuck's script, and he's asked me to just uh, do a, a little bit of extra jokes for uh, Trump's dialogue. I was like, oh, is, is Chuck okay with that? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It was that kind of project where, you know, if you had a good idea, we wanted to throw it in, because, you know, it was pastiche, it was parody, you know, uh, and, and any good idea was welcome. It was like an airplane movie. <laughs> exactly. Well, it was a pastiche. I thought it was like high art. I mean, I thought it was. <laughs> you mean we weren't being serious? I thought it was like the well, ci- pastiche can be high art. <laughs> it was like the Citizen Kane of parody. Is what it was. <laughs> and I loved it. Well, Chuck, we have thirty seconds left. Is there anything else that you want to say? Uh, you want pe- to tell people where to find you, what to keep uh, an eye out on? Well, just go online. Put you know, put my name in on Amazon. I got a new. Uh, Levon Cade book called Levon's Time just came out a couple of weeks ago and uh, yeah that's it well fantastic thank you very much Chuck for being on for these 30 minutes hopefully we didn't take up too much of your time but you know you heard the man himself if you want to support him just check him out you know who he is Chuck Dixon we'll be and we're back this is Timothy Lim in the studio filling in for Dave Ellswick with my trusty co-host Mark Pellegrini and Zach over at the operators booth over there it's been a busy day. We had Chuck Dixon call in just now. We had Doug Tenable. We had Preston Poulter. We had Mark Britton, the voice actor behind the Grand Kai and Bubbles and Oolong in the original Dragon Ball Z. He came in to kind of yuck it up a little bit. It's hard to believe that, you know, three and a half hours goes by so quickly, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, talking to so many good people. Yeah. Whenever the conversation is good, it goes by really quickly. I don't actually see how Zach has the energy to do this. <laughs> you have to have some pretty high tea to make to to keep up with everything going on here and you know how dave is dave is definitely like he is the master when it comes to the conversation he can get he can keep any conversation going so man it's uh, very interesting we do have one more guest who i do believe is going to be calling in here in maybe less than a minute so we're going to hold out for him but in the meantime let me just repeat what i said before at the very beginning of the show if you want to see mark pellegrini and i we are going to be at the um spock this weekend in, in Hot, Hot Springs, Springs Arkansas. Yeah. <clears throat> SpaCon is an annual event that they put on around this time of year. It's three days. It actually technically starts tonight. If you're in the Hot Springs area and you're listening, tonight they're going to have the Cybertronic Spree. You have to look up these guys on YouTube. It's pretty hysterical. So uh, it's these guys, and they wear a full they wear full Transformers costumes. I mean, they look like mini Transformers, and they go on stage, and they play the songs from the, trans- the old Transformers movies, uh, movie 
and the they do TV like series. Stan Bush covers of like <laughs> The Touch and, and Dare and things. Right, right? Yeah. yes. So it officially kicks off tonight. Um, again, I told him I wouldn't be there tonight because we're hosting Dave Ellswick's show, but I said I'd help them promote as kind of a consolation prize. But this weekend, for both days, Mark and I are going to be there. So if you are a Dave Ellswick listener and you're listening to this right now and you see us tomorrow, let us know that you heard us on the Dave Ellswick show. I always reward people who come up and say that they know me from social media because, in my opinion, that's a really good way of marketing and advertising. I don't know if what I'm saying or doing works unless you come (laughs) up and tell me that that's how you know me. And I think people who are listening, I'm going to give a shout out to Justin Mobley. He was actually the very first person to back our book, Black Ops. And at the last show, he approached us and he told us. He said, I was the very first person to back it. <laughs> Turns out he was the person who collected everything that I had that done. That guy was amazing. He was amazing. And Mark and I appreciate it because, uh, again, we're rookies. We, we're amateurs. We don't really know what we're doing. We're learning by we're learning by uh, basically yeah. I mean, falling out of the nest. It's supposed to be rainy this weekend, isn't it? Isn't that the forecast? They so, said, according to the weather, they said it's going to be partly cloudy. Partly cloudy. Okay. Well, if it does uh, get rainy and you your plans for outdoor activities do get rained out this weekend, SpaCon is indoors because it's a convention, so there's something you can do this weekend. That's right, and Barry Boswick is going to be there, too. <laughs> yeah, Rocky Horror. I'm looking at our, our call center right now, and it looks like we do have a phone call coming in, so we're going to let Zach screen that call real quick, make sure it's uh, one of the guests that we gave an invitation to, and hopefully we'll have him join us for the last segment of, of the Dave Ellswick show. But it's been a lot of fun. We're really glad that everyone's been hanging out with us this week. But it, Zach's giving me the okay, so we're going to have our guests uh, pop on here in just a second. But let me introduce him real quick. So to round out our show, we have, and this has been a surprise to a lot of people. We knew everyone knew that Doug and Chuck were going to call in, but they didn't know that Mark was going to call in. So that was, you know, that was like an icing on the cake. But our second icing on the cake is we have Mike Miller. So Mike Miller is an illustrator. He's renowned. He's done a lot of work in the comics industry. You might know him best from working on the Injustice series for DC Comics. It was a huge hit. The art was phenomenal. Uh, People talk about it all the time. He has his own independent projects that he's working on as well. He did an adaptation of The Meg, Mm -hmm. the movie that came out last year with Jason Statham, which is also based on the book. And he has his own property called Lone Star, which is um, either in demand or funding right now on Indiegogo. Either way, you can come in, you can go to Indiegogo and you can back it. But with us right now is Mike Miller. Mike, how are you doing? What's up? What's up? <laughs> oh, is it 1998 again? It's, it's 1998. It is. it is. What's the other one that they say, like, Grey Poupon? There's that Grey Poupon joke. Oh, man, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. Do you have any Grey Poupon? Oh, my gosh. That was such a good impersonation. That sounded almost just like Michael Myers. <laughs> I only know that joke from Wayne's World. <laughs> oh, from Wayne's Oh, really? Oh, yes. my gosh. No, that was a commercial from the 80s, man. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting all my all my timelines mixed up. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. How's the weather over there? Is it California? No, I, I feel like I have to explain the great poupon joke now. <laughs> do it, do it. You know, it's like we're wrapping up the show. Okay, it's pretty so loosey goosey. Great. They used to have these commercials for great poupon where it would be like uh, two two like super snooty rich guys, like two limousines. One pulls over to the other, and one side the window rolls down, and then and like he kind of waves, and the other window rolls down, and in, and the guy is making a sandwich. He's like. Pardon me. Do you have any gray poupon? (laughs) Well, we are on the radio right now. They were were legit (laughs) trying to freaking sell to the snooty rich mustard crowd, I guess. Well, we're on the radio right now, so if any of you listening are uh, waiting at a stoplight, just roll down your window and say that to the person next to you. Maybe they'll (laughs) give you some mustard. 
Yeah, make sure that they're probably... He did, he did that to a cop once. And he got pulled <laughs> over and he got out of a ticket. <laughs> I, I was about to say, make sure you're 30 and over because if you're not, people might think that you're up to no good. <laughs> you might get punched yeah. in the face or something. Oh, is that yeah. the new kind of crystal meth is great coupon? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's code for something else. But anyway, Mike, it's, it's good to have you on the show. We had Doug Tenapel on earlier and we ended up having this, this nice conversation about... Um, Politics, religion, comics, we, we were able to work it all into a 30-minute segment. And I guess where we can yeah. go where, I guess where we can go from that <clears throat> is one thing that Doug and I were talking about, and he, he loved talking about it. It was, it was kind of a passionate topic. But one thing that Mark and I had noticed, especially working, you know, we haven't been doing this for very long, but we noticed that we had originally thought there was a left-right dichotomy, that it was this idea that, oh, we're conservatives, and then you have people on the other side, and they're attacking us. And I don't know whether it's because of fatigue or whether it's because there's this need for finding enemies, but now we're finding ourselves in positions where we're attacked by mostly people who are supposedly on our own side, whether that be uh, uh, conservatives or people who we were once aligned with. And so I guess... You know, Doug had his own point of view with this, um, and people can listen to it, and it's, it was a very good response. But you've wor- been working in the industry, um, you know, obviously longer than we have. We're not, we're technically not in. What have been your experiences in dealing with people? Because I know that you know you're very, you're like Doug. You're pretty open about your Christianity. You're pretty open about your conservatism. What has life been like working in the industry? And what are things that you can reflect on having been independent for about a year uh, at this point? Uh, I'd much rather be beholden to my fans than editors. Yeah, edit- uh, or, or, Do you or, have editors, yeah, though? editors. Well, editor, not not necessarily. Ed- All right, the first time I was blacklisted was back in 2000 or something like that. And uh, it's funny because I was on the DC Council message boards, and uh, this all started because um, I had just been in a panel with, with – Jeff Loeb and some of the other, um, some of the other Superman uh, creators, right? And on the panel at, DC, at, at, at San Diego Comic Con, Jeff Loeb said point blank that um, computer techno, that's not right. <laughs> um, point blank that 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 Superman was a Christian and most likely, I think he said a Methodist. I don't remember, but he said it on the panel. Um, because hey, look, he, this, he was from the forties. He was he was raised in Kansas for Pete's sake. It's like, um, and so I went and I dared to repeat what Jeff said on the DC Comics message board, and I got all these people just up in arms that I would dare say that Superman was a Christian. And I'm like, I didn't say it. The writer said it. Jeff was not even a Christian. He's just like being a practical realistic writer about a, a character who grew up in the Bible Belt in the 40s. But what these people did was they shot the messenger. They couldn't get Jeff Loeb, so they went yeah. after you. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so then they also got, uh, they started in on the, oh, you're, you know, you're a Christian, so what do you think about homosexuality? And I'm like, I believe what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. And therefore, obviously, I'm a great big evil homophobe right and that that's actually what we were talking about with um <clears throat> that's what we were talking about with doug to today too was the yeah. idea that so the one thing that unites us is that you have doug and he's an evangelical christian and i'm i'm a catholic and then mark uh is a, a religious i think he he has christian sympathies because his friends are all pretty much christian and the one thing that i said should be should not be a 
it should not be a surprise to anyone is when you're a Christian and you say you believe in traditional marriage, that was par for the course. That's not controversy. That's just understood. No. And so what we're noticing not now true. is you have these people who are on supposedly on the right and they're like, well, you're a homophobe. And it's like, I expect that attack from someone on the left because that's, that is a very ad hominem thing. I mean, I come from a medical background and I can say there's a reason why we have terms like agoraphobia, acrophobia, triskaidekaphobia. It's because those are extreme fears based on a, a phenomenon, a trigger, or an object, and they have to be diagnosed. Right. And in my opinion, when you say homophobia, right. you're insulting two people. You're insulting the person that you're trying to slander, but you're also insulting words because you're literally referring to a fear of people who have a sexual persuasion, and that's not the case at all. We're looking at it, no. we're looking at it from a religious perspective, and my best example I can give them is they're like, well, it seems like you're singling them out. And I'm like, no, I have the same opinion regarding adulterers. It's a sin. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same it's, it's 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 the same caliber of grievance that we're we're calling some attention to. And so um again, I don't want to bring up uh necessarily the specifics of internet drama, but I think one of the things that's happened recently with Doug and with you and uh with us to some extent is I don't think we ever saw the day where we would see people f- from our own side kind of casting these aspersions on us. Like, I think that, in a way, is very surprising. Um, I, you know, it, sh- it should be surprising. Um, or maybe it shouldn't be surprising. I'm not sure how to phrase it. I don't know. I've, I've given up on arguing uh, about specific people. Uh, but I'll just speak in, in generalities that have it can have to do with anybody who takes this sort of position is that is a straight up SJW mentality wherein you will attack somebody. Um, you will, you will attribute nefarious motivation rather than, than um, giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. Right. Right. If you're, if you're willing to say, Oh, well you disagree, you have an opinion on this subject. That opinion must be born of either, stupidity, uh, hatred, or just out-and-out evil, then your, your assertion to that end is, is a 100% SJW tactic. Right. right? And that is, that is the divide between rational and irrational people. On the left or on the right, whatever it is, I find it to be obviously far more prescient on the, on the left or present in the left. Um, but it is it's at that point you you reject conversation you reject the ability to think rationally and have a dialogue about what the source of someone's misgivings may be right it's right. it's just it's closed minded bigotry in a nutshell and the one thing that Doug mentioned um because he's been very open for decades about his Christianity. So I don't think that he was like a late time convert or anything like that. It's always been who he is. And it's part of his brand. Um, people know him based on that. And um, I think it's one thing when someone doesn't know what your position is and you've been working on something for some years and then out of the blue, you mentioned something. I think it's just a shock factor that gets people. But it should be no surprise when it comes to guys like you, guys like Doug Tenable. This is not anything new under the sun. This is something that people... Nope are aware of. And like I said, um, besides your work on injustice and obviously with Lone Star, the one thing I could tell people 
is that you were a Christian. And this, like I said, none of that should come as any surprise to anyone. Um, the Dave Ellswick audience, they tune in. We're here in central Arkansas, but people tune in nationwide. In fact, Edwin Boyette just texted me because it turns out he's been stalking me with the cam that's set up here in the studio. But for our listeners out there, because you're, I think this is your first time being on the show, tell us a little bit more mm-hmm. about the projects that you have, either that you're working on right now or that you've had in the past. Because I think Lone Star is obviously your flagship property. But I think that for new re, uh, listeners who are tuning in, they, they might want to hear a little bit more about what you have to offer. Uh, well, if we're just going to go through the past, I mean, I've been in this industry for 27 years now. Uh, I started at Malibu, then Marvel, then DC Image. Uh, I've done so much stuff that it would take the whole half an hour just to list it all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the stuff I'm most known for, just going back the last few years, would be the Injustice series, which I was on for about six years. Um, the Game of Thrones covers, the Game of Thrones prequel books, the the uh, Hedge Knight, Sworn Sword, and the Mystery Knight featuring the Duncan Egg stories. Um, then uh, Batman Arkham Unhinged, uh, JLA, uh, Adventures of Superman, um, and a bunch of other crap. <laughs> but now, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all work for higher stuff, which, right. which was great because that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, all I really, like my bucket list thing was I wanted to be on one project for years, and I was on Injustice, and it was, you know, number one digital comic in the world, New York Times bestseller with every release. It was, uh, it was, it was a fantastic book to be on. But, you know, um, it's, it's not my book, and now I'm working on Lone Star, which is my um, sort of a Captain America meets Blade meets uh, sort of a not G.I. Joe, but he works with a, a team of, of unknown soldiers and uh, they all have powers of their own and, and they go out and they fight the uh, things that go bump in the night, uh, the vampires, the werewolves and all that stuff. And um, So that's what I'm doing now. And it's just, it's a whole new world. I mean, it's, it's not that I haven't worked on my own projects before. I used to run uh, Alias Comics for a while and I published several of my own titles there, but doing this is I'm doing everything at alias. I was, I was a a creative director. So I was writing books. I was co-writing books. I was editing books, but I wasn't able to just sit down and draw my own book. This I am writing it. I am drawing it. I am, I'm not editing it. I do have an editor rolling hand. Um, I am art directing it obviously. And it's the best work of my entire career. And so it is it is stage one, you know, turbine for my entire universe, Blacklist Universe, blacklistuniverse.com if you want to follow me on YouTube. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a dream come true, really, because I'm able to sit here and I'm, I'm being funded directly by the fans. I don't have some overlord at DC Comics telling me, Mike, you're a firebrand. You have to stop talking. Have to, you know, it's like if I want to stop talking, it's because I want to be convicted that what I'm saying is stupid, um, not that some politically correct, um, you know, letter writing campaign has, has, you know. Oh, and that was the thing. <laughs> I forgot to mention. I, I went so off the rails. The letter writing campaign from the what what they deemed themselves the uh, Gay League of America <laughs> uh, to get me booted off of. Uh, JLA and and blacklisted from DC 
And at the time, uh, Bob Shrek was, who was a very open, out, proud uh, homosexual man, was the uh, group editor at, at uh, on Batman. And so uh, they were, at least from what they said, this this is hearsay from what they told me, uh, they were writing Bob Shrek directly. Uh, he was an ally, and suddenly all my work at DC vanished, and uh, no one would tell me why. Wow. And keep in mind, I went from being the artist on JLA, right? Uh, I was a fill-in artist, but I had a... a um, you know, I was in good. Dan Raspler was the editor. He freaking loved me. He loved my work. Um, he loved that I turned everything on time. And um, we had a greenlit 12-issue uh, maxi series that was going to come out. I always wanted to do, like, my JLA version of Avengers Forever. So I pitched this book that was sort of, the JLA in space, but it's like guns of Navarone. And he just <laughs> loved it. He got a writer. We got a pitch going, we got it green lit. And then suddenly up in smoke. Wow. Holy and cow. so that was my first experience with, uh, with, with the SJW mob, um, trying to, trying to ruin my career. And, uh, you know, Hey, they're very organized. Those fascists. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're having so much success in the independent market. Mike, if you could stay with us for just a few more minutes, we're going to take a soft break so that we can have uh, news, traffic, and weather. And if you if you can, stay with us until the end of the hour, uh, and we'll wrap up. And that way you can have a little bit more time to talk about your projects. But we're going to take a soft break right now, and we'll be back in just a few minutes here on The Dave Ellswick Show. Absolutely. And we're back. This is Dr. Timothy Lim with my co-host, Mark Pellegrini, and we are rounding out the hour. We've been here for four hours filling in for Dave Ellswick, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening. On the line with us, our last guest, Mike Miller, great guy. If you go to YouTube, you can follow him at Blacklist Universe. It's really entertaining. He has videos that he puts up where he t- just talks, but it's also like a variety show because he'll also have these like drawing competitions, like drawn and quartered, for example, and art auctions. So really cool. Like I said, uh, he mentioned before, I think at blacklistuniverse.com, if you want a direct link to check him out on YouTube. But he also has his comic, Lone Star, which is funding on Indiegogo. So go on Indiegogo and just look at Lone Star. I mean, you could also search on Google, and I'm sure it will pop up. But we're really happy that, you know, this is first time on the show. Happy to have him on. Mike, we have about an hour. We have a, about a minute and 45 seconds left, and it was kind of a tight crunch. But um, oh. <laughs> these are these are your parting words. So, do you have any uh, anything to say to the audience to promote yourself or uh, l- anything that you want them to know? Oh uh, yeah, well, if LoneStarComic.com is the direct link to the Indiegogo, but I also do a, a daily sort of a Bible show where we do uh, uh, talk about the Bible and talk about current uh, Christian related events. I don't know if there's a Christian channel or not. I'm just uh, throwing that out there, um, and that's you know it's like my ministry part of my day. And uh, other than that, yeah, I've just been, I'm, I'm planning on building out this entire universe. Uh, I have other projects in the works. And like I said, this is just the first, uh, first step on a very long journey. So if you want to get in there, sort of like, you know, hey, what if you got the first, first issue of uh, Amazing Fantasy with Spider-Man, or you got the first issue of Action Comics with Superman, this is kind of where you want to be if you want to be there at the launch of a new universe of superheroes and uh you know what? Uh, I'm just sick to death of the way that 
Marvel and DC have been treating our heroes like Captain America and, and Wonder Woman and all that the kind of SJW crap they have been dumping in the comics. So the tagline for Blacklist Universe is very simply heroes you can believe in. There you and go. That's what I intend to do. Sounds good. Well, thank you for very much for being on the show. We are closing out. Thank you so much. You can see us this weekend at SpaCon. Have a good weekend, everyone. See you. Thanks, guys.